Well, hi, my name is Bay Logan, and welcome to the Hong Kong Legends DVD release of the all-time classic John Woo masterpiece, Bullet in the Head, the Cantonese title of which is Dip Hoot Gai Tao. Dip Hoot basically meaning pouring blood, Hoot being blood and uh, dip meaning pouring, and Gai Tao meaning like on the street, Tao is like the, the street. So it's Dip Hoot Gai Tao, um, and really referring to bloodshed in the street, like riots, a time of chaos, uh, a time of, uh, of, 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 of really of... of uh, turmoil and uh, this is really the great war masterpiece of John Woo and when John Woo began filmmaking one of his idols was David Lean and Bullet in the Head is really his homage to David Lean his attempt to do a film of David Lean proportions after beloved Media Asia logo we have the Golden Princess Film Production Limited Golden Princess really was the distribution company distributing the films made by Cinema City and also by the John Woo Film Production Limited John Woo also has another film company called Milestone Productions which still maintains offices to this day in Hong Kong and we wish he'd very very soon come back and make a movie in Hong Kong for us and the title track uh, the music here is really kind of a, a jazzed up saxophone version of the monkeys hit I'm a Believer, which the original song actually was written by Neil Diamond. I know people are aware of that. Neil Diamond was a songwriter and he wrote a song that was recorded and made famous by the Monkees. And the, the same song turns up later in the film in a very key sequence. And here on the right we see Tony Leung, Leung Chi Wai. And a very soft opening for what's a very intense film. The other kind of movies that John Woo really loves is the old Hollywood musicals. And particularly, he loved uh, West Side Story. So I always think this opening here with this kind of school dance in a church is, is, is very relevant to, is very reminiscent of West Side Story and the outfits as well, you know, the Jets and Sharks look that you see there from Tony Leung. There's a little beat at the end of this scene, I'm not quite sure what it means, when uh, he kind of apparently has injured himself, maybe in a gang fight, because that's where we go from there into the next thing, that really relates the, um, the fact that we're in this particular, in the 60s in, in Hong Kong, an era much beloved by John Woo, because this is when he grew up and where he grew up on the back streets of Hong Kong and references to the icons of the era. They mentioned Mao Wong, a uh, very bad drawing of uh, Elvis there, and of course John F. Kennedy on the left, two icons of the 60s. I go to a club in Hong Kong called the 60s, where um, I know, uh, sorry, the 50s, which is where John Woo is known to hang out sometimes. And so he's got, there's actually a big picture on the wall there of Elvis. It's about as accurate as that drawing that we just saw. This gang fight here really reflecting the two sides of life in Hong Kong in the 60s as is often depicted in film. On one side you have the dancing and the music and the fun and all the brightness of the era and also you have all these gang fights on the street. The main bad guy, the main thug, the guy doing all the stunts in this sequence is actually um, a famous stuntman. It's the guy with the knife here fighting Jackie Chung on the left. The guy on the right is, uh, the character name is Ringo. His name is Paco and he's uh, Paco Yik, Yi Tin Hong. Uh, later, he would be the action director for a film starring Jackie Chung called Live and Die in Chim Sa Choi, and also the action director on Once Upon a Time in China 5. Here's Jackie Chung, born, actually just born within this uh, decade that we're seeing here. He's born on the 10th of July 1961, and a very popular singer who then moved on to make movies with his debut in Where's Officer Tuba, opposite the great Sammo Hong. And um, this is probably, in terms of dramatic roles, his most really intense part that he's ever done in his cinematic career. Normally he was cast as these rather lightly comedic romantic roles. But this is a real change of pace for him. The movie as a whole, I mean, I, one of my favorite John Woo pictures in terms of the great ambition that he shows and the realization of this great epic, I think he was probably let down slightly by casting. Uh, Tony Leung, of course, really comes into his own in this movie and would become arguably the greatest cinematic leading man of, of our era. There's him and Andy Lau. 
who appeared so memorably in Infernal Affairs 1 and 3. And you could actually argue that either one of them was the great leading man. I think in terms of quality rather than quantity, we'd have to say that Tony Leung, Leung Chi Wai, was the man. Here's the third member of the main cast, Wei Lee, and I feel probably the Lei Chi Hong, and judging on this performance, probably the weaker player in the movie, and he never really went on to a role as a leading man. He's always been more of a strong supporting actor. He became a good deal better. I think here he's probably overparted. It's an old theatrical phrase. He's given a role that he's really, at this stage of his career, wasn't up to um, delivering on as an actor, and we'll talk about that a bit later, because I feel it was a shame that uh, the film couldn't have been cast more with uni more uniform excellence, particularly with, in terms of leading ladies. For some reason, John Woo was never really lucky in terms of leading ladies. I always feel that the, the women, the female roles in his Hong Kong movies were really never that uh, well cast and never really that impressive. The other, uh, the backdrop to this era is, of course, we had riots in Hong Kong. It's very unusual to have any rioting in the streets or any kind of social disorder. Hong Kong is actually very, unlike un what you would think from watching Hong Kong movies with all the gunplay and kung fu, Hong Kong is a very safe and civilized place. But we did in the 1960s, in 1966, and in 1967, which is when this movie is set, this movie is set in 67, we had these kind of riots. The 1966 riots were sparked by a fair rise on the Star Ferry. The Star Ferry is this very cheap boat that goes back and forth between the peninsula and Hong Kong Island many times every day. And they raised the fair, and one young fellow went on hunger strike to protest, and this actually led to riots in Kowloon. There's the card saying, well, yeah, well, this is Hong Kong 1967, when um, supporters of Mao Zedong, all these kind of Hong Kong version of the Red Guards, laid siege to government house, and there was actually uh, bombs planted, and the nearest thing to civil insurgents that we've ever seen in Hong Kong. So uh, we'll see a bit later in the movie that there's uh, more examples of that actually happening, a reflection of what was really happening on the streets. The whole of this film really being informed by the fact that it was shot in the wake of the Tiananmen Square massacre. John Woo is a great humanist and a Christian and a uh, real Hong Kong filmmaker, Chinese filmmaker, was greatly affected by this. So he finds like reflections in both the turmoil of the 1967 Hong Kong, which he himself experienced, and the beginnings of the Vietnam War, which he probably had uh, at one an experience of. People in Hong Kong were very aware of the war in Vietnam because it was very close and it was happening in the late 60s. But at the same time, they were not actually physically on the on the scene, but there was still a sense that the whole of Asia might go up in flames. Also, there would have been many American GIs and other um, members of the forces taking their R&R &R in Hong Kong. So there was an awareness in Hong Kong that there was a war, the war was being fought in Vietnam. So that both of these are reflections of the concern that John Woo was feeling about Tiananmen Square, post Tiananmen Square, and in the lead up to the 1997 handover. But this very lyrical beginning showing this golden era both in the history of Hong Kong and I think in the life of John Woo, even though he was living a very rough, tough, back, uh, back street existence. I mean, he was living in the slums. This is probably a time in his life that was less complicated than his life now. Of course, many of you are probably wondering, where is John Woo? Why am I doing a solo commentary? And the reason for that is that we did, I, on bended knee, asked John to come and do a commentary, or so I'd fly to LA to do one with him. And repeatedly, word came back from his people that he was too busy. And I'm thinking, well, for wind talkers, he has time. Uh, but for this masterpiece, he's too busy, which is a shame because I, I obviously I think Bullet in the Head is far superior to his other great war movie, which was Wind Talkers with Nicolas Cage. And I, I look a bit like Nicolas Cage. Surely he could have made time. Maybe we'll get him. Maybe we'll get him for the if we ever do a double disc deluxe bonus uh, DVD release. Maybe we'll get him for that in the future. But in the meantime, it's me looking at one of my favourite movies from the the John Woo canon. 
Here's a, a popular street ditty of the time. And these wonderfully iconic shots, you can tell only somebody who lived in Hong Kong would know where to shoot these particular juxtaposition of green pastures and these great satanic mills in the background. Our leading lady is Fenny Yun on the left, who you might remember from Pedicab Driver, those of you lucky enough to see Pedicab Driver, a movie long overdue for a re-release on DVD. Fenny Yun, Yun Gitying, who's really a wonderful, delicate beauty to her and fine actress, as she proved in uh, Pedicab Driver, and also in Ringo Lam's controversial and underrated film School on Fire and in Swordsman 1 opposite uh, Sam Hoy, Swordsman 2 opposite Jet Li and in Tai Chi Master which also had uh, Jet Li in it. She must be the unluckiest actress in terms of wedding nights because those of you who saw Pedicab Driver will remember that on her wedding night in Pedicab Driver both she and her husband are slaughtered and now in this movie uh, the wedding night happens and uh, also there's like a tragic outcome. The uh, we have like um, great supporting actors. The far th this is this is typical of the um, of the Hong Kong of that era. If you were living in one of these big apartment buildings, where many people still live to this day, and there was a wedding, you'd have a big turnout like this. And of course, uh, a lot of these people are not paid extras. There are people living in the shopping in this kind of um, housing buildings, and they've come out to actually see people moving. And so it, it actually makes sense why they're watching people making the movie, but it makes sense they should be out there because in this era, one of the great entertaining things would be to come. Here we are at uh, a representation of this marketplace, an open door marketplace. We don't see too much of these uh, anymore. And this has obviously been taken over for the for the wedding banquet. And there's the father on the left. The, the father is uh, Chan Gan Wing, who you may remember from Mr. Canton, Lady Rose. And uh, this red being the lucky, the color of happiness. I mean, that's something that you always see in Hong Kong movies. And you see the logo in the background there on that red on the red wall, kind of echoes the last scene. That means double happiness. That's sim a symbol, and it kind of like emphasizes the happiness between husband and wife. Jackie Chung really uh, is kind of, uh, I think, in and out of the character. There's some scenes that are very challenging that he performs very well, and some that perhaps he doesn't deliver on so well. Guy on the left here playing the, the moneylender is actually Raymond Lee, who directed, among other things, uh, New Dragon Gate Inn. Very talented director, now working in primarily in Taiwan, doing television as well as films. But this is like his big claim to fame, I guess. He was in this. Also, he was in uh, Gen Y Cops. He was a guy selling lobsters in Gen Y Cops. John Woo, another great influence on John Woo, of course, is Kurosawa. So you have many key sequences in the film taking place in the rain. And so this, is, of course, is the great, uh, or in his films, you have great sequences taking place in rain, what Shakespeare called sympathetic nature. And this is something that um, was, wasn't created by Kurosawa, but certainly in film terms, he made a big influence from like Seven Samurai onwards. Filmmakers were always setting these big action sequences in the rain because um, it somehow adds this dramatic impact that heaven itself is crying to reflect what's, uh, what's happening. I mentioned the, the guy playing Ringo. I don't know why he's called Ringo. The bad guy's Ringo. Either it's a nod to Ringo Lam, Lam Ling Dong, or indeed a reference, big as is said in the 60s when the Beatles were at the height of their fame, to the Beatles drummer Ringo Starr. But uh, Paco uh, had, a, had an interesting career in front of and behind the camera, but normally known as a stuntman and as an action coordinator. This is actually probably the most memorable on-screen performance he's delivered in Bullet in the Head. The um, music for the film is by James Wong, who's uh, one of these typical multitasking Hong Kong talents. TV host, you can see him as an actor in many films. He's the judge in Iron Monkey. He also did the scores for the Choi Hark films, Peking Off the Blues and Chinese Ghost Story. And later worked with John Woo, providing additional music for the movie Hard Boiled. 
And uh, the other composer of the music for the film is Romeo Diaz, who's actually unusually is a Filipino musician. There's many, many Filipino musicians in Hong Kong. What's unusual is that he made the transition to working in film and did the music for a lot of very prominent action movies from the 80s. Yes, Madam, Above the Law, Writing Wrongs, uh, Chinese Ghost Story. He also worked on Once Upon a Time in China, again with James Wong, and uh, City Hunter with uh, uh, Jackie Chan. That's uh, Chan Po Chu, you just saw there a moment ago with the, in the, the bedroom of Jackie. It, Chan Po Chu was another leading idol, a movie idol of this era. So there's great attention to detail and full credit to the uh, designer of the film, the production, des production designer, the, the art director, James Leung, Leung Hua Sang, who began his career on Witch from Nepal in 1985 with Jiayun Fat and also was the production designer for Swordsman, Chinese Ghost Story 3, the second Fong Sai Yuk. He did also the last film of King Hu, which is called Painted Skin, and collaborated also with John Woo on Hard Boiled. And I actually uh, worked with him, albeit at one remove, when he did a mediation movie called 2000 AD, which I thought had very good uh, production design or art direction, however you want to refer to it. And uh, he's um, did a fantastic job here because even though this is like, Hong Kong's changed tremendously between the 60s and, and the 90s when this movie was made. This movie was made in 1990. And so there's a huge transition in Hong Kong in those years. And to actually recapture it is quite a challenge. And I think he did a fantastic job. The movie actually played in Hong Kong between the 17th of the 8th, 1990 and the end of that, and the, and the 31st of the 8th, 1990. The budget was about 3.5 million US, which was a big budget at that time, particularly with no real stars in the cast. I mean, there was Tony Leung hadn't yet really become Tony Leung. Jackie Chan was much more well known as a singer, and Wazy Lee hadn't become a star, and I think it's fair to say never really did become a star. So it was a big gamble, and really they were gambling on the, the director, but I think perhaps with the audiences in Hong Kong, having just had this political turmoil of Tiananmen Square, really didn't want to see a dark political movie at that time. So the film really underperformed at the local box office. It only made 8.5 million. So it's probably the biggest flop. Uh, I think in the end, it did make money worldwide and certainly helped cement the uh, reputation of John Woo internationally because people perhaps previously might have dismissed him as a gangster director, as a gangster movie director. So there are gangster movie elements to this film. It's obviously a war movie, like an epic period war movie of a whole different scale to whatever kind of films he was doing, the other kind of films that he did before. So uh, people will, um, it was money well spent in that, even though he didn't. I remember actually one time making a movie, a meteorological called Purple Storm, and watching it on a flight with our producer, Thomas Chung. And uh, I said, it was such a great movie. I still love Purple Storm, but it didn't make a lot of money when it was first released. And I said, it was a film that was worth making, even though it didn't make money. I remember a kind of dangerous attitude for filmmaker to have but sometimes obviously you try to make money back on your film and you hope it'll be successful but in the case of this film it's had such a kind of life after its initial theatrical release and now of course we have this wonderful DVD reissue so um, you really look at the film and you can value it more and more as the years pass. Tony Leung here, Leung Chiwai, born 27th of June 1962 in Canton. Uh, his father left the family when uh, they were he was very young and so he and his sister were raised by their mother. In 1982, Tony Leung graduated from the TVB Actors Training Program. TVB is a television broadcast, basically. It's the biggest uh, broad TV broadcaster in Hong Kong. And uh, it was kind of like an, an offshoot of the mighty Shaw Brothers empire. He started working in TV, presenting a children's show alongside Stephen Chow, Chow Singchi, the star of uh, Shaolin Soccer, and became popular initially working on both period TV series and contemporary TV series as a comedy actor. 
before he made his movie debut in 1983's movie Mad Mad 83, which was a, a comedy directed by Chor Yun, who directed many of these clan fiction movies at Shaw Brothers, all these martial art movies based on the, book, the books of Gu Long. But he also directed comedies, and this was one of them. It was written by the subsequently very prolific producer-director Wong Jing. You can also see Tony Leung's early acting performances in movies like Stanley Kwan's Love Unto Waste. He made his movie, his debut in a gangster movie in People's Hero, which was directed by Derek Yi, Yi Dong Sing. Derek Yi had also been an actor at, at Shaw Brothers in his uh, earlier career. And he's also in another gangster picture, My Heart is That Eternal Rose. I always think My Heart is That Eternal Rose is probably the least likely title for a hard-edged gangster movie. But anyway, that was directed by Patrick Tam. He also worked the following year with uh, Wong Kar Wai on Days of Being Wild. And uh, he's um, somebody whose reputation has grown as he's given greater challenges in terms of filmmaking, in terms of film roles. And this really, to me, is a movie when I first noticed him as an actor, as people know, there are actually there are two Tony Leungs. There's Tony Leung Chu Wai, who's the guy we're seeing here, and Tony Leung Garfai, who's um, the guy who was in The Lover. And I think for a long time, that Tony Leung, Tony Leung Leung Garfai, was the preeminent one. And this movie, to me anyway, my own uh, recognition of Tony Leung's acting, of the other Tony Leung's acting, was the time that I really began to appreciate that he was a guy of extraordinary talent who was going to be um, you know, a name to look out for. And indeed, he did uh, re-team with John Woo later, most memorably on the movie Hard Boiled, in which he stars opposite uh, Jia Yun-Fan. He's also become a regular player for the films of Wong Kar Wai, uh, Chungking Express, Ashes of Time, more recently uh, In the Mood for Love, uh, for which he won uh, Best Actor at uh, Cannes. And then recently he was seen in a big epic period martial arts movie, uh, Hero, in 2002. And then the Infernal Affairs 1 and Infernal Affairs Part 3, these two gangster movies which have been hugely popular. They've won almost, almost every award going in the Asian region. And have been Infernal Affairs 1 was picked up for remake in the States by Brad Pitt's company. And right now, I believe, he's in Shanghai shooting 2046 for Wong Kar Wai. And we, we all joke that film's been taking so long to make that it might actually be shot in, uh, might actually be released in 2046. This sequence is one of two scenes in the film, this and the ending, which almost seem like they've been transplanted in from a more conventional Hong Kong action film to um, try to make the film more palatable to local audiences. And there were four cinematographers on the film, which may explain the different look and style of the film. I rather think that this was actually shot by the, the fourth of the, the four cinematographers, uh, who, whose name is Horace Wong, Wong Wing Hang, who shot A Better Tomorrow, Black Mask 2. It's got that kind of feel to it. The film itself exists, Bullet in the Head, in several different versions. There was a longer print that was initially released in Hong Kong, didn't perform well, was recalled, recut. There's a Taiwanese print. There's a Malaysian-Singaporean print, which is cut for censorship reasons. And so there's various scenes of the film which you um, see in some, some prints, not in others. The scene at the end of that sequence where Ringo is killed, where Tony Leung's bashing his head, there's actually longer in some prints. You actually see him being beaten on the head repeatedly. All different reasons why the film was cut down. One reason it was cut down in Hong Kong is because if you do have a movie in Hong Kong that's over a certain length, the distributors complain because they can't get any, they can't get enough screenings in a day to make the kind of money they need to make from a film. And here's the man himself, the director of the film, John Woo, on the right there smoking a cigarette, playing a police inspector. John Woo, Mu Sum, uh, arguably the greatest action director or the greatest single dramatic action director in the history of Hong Kong cinema. And uh, I, in my view, one of the great directors of the world. Uh, unfortunately, I think Hollywood really still hasn't figured out what to do with him because the best movie he's done is Face Off, which I don't think anybody would really say 
stacks up against some of the great movies that he's written, directed and produced in Hong Kong. But he may yet, in his uh, later years, make something really extraordinary in America, and I hope he does. The fat guy that we're seeing here will be uh, a familiar face for anybody who watches TV. He's a regular ATV actor. His name is Sek In Lao. And you can also see him off in, in, Lao Ga, in the film with Lao Ga Lung, uh, Operation Scorpio, kung fu movie that we released on Hong Kong Legends DVD. I think it was last year sometime, but this is his little moment in this movie. The setting we're seeing here is actually the, double, the World War II air raid shelters and defensive positions built by the British and Chinese forces to re supposedly to repel the Japanese in World War II. Of course, um, Hong Kong was overrun by the Japanese in World War II. But these defensive positions still are maintained and this is actually overlooking Hong Kong from, I think this is actually Lam Tin, which is near where I used to live. You can actually see the same location in the movie Young and Dangerous, the prequel, where they have a scene before these, uh, with these kids discussing what their futures are going to be. Uh, the film, uh, it's hard to, be to believe now that the film came out and really didn't get um, uh, the kind of in initial recognition in Hong Kong that you might expect. People didn't uh, go around and say, oh, this is a masterpiece, it's a classic. The feeling at the time was that it was a very dark film, that it was very hard work. And the film that was really acclaimed that year was actually Wong Kar Wai's movie, Days of Being Wild. Here we are back out in the streets for the, um, in the 1967 riots. This was actually, of course, during a time of turmoil in China that spilled over into Hong Kong and there was unrest and, and dissatisfaction with the idea of British colonial rule. There were all these Maoists uh, <coughs> laying siege to government house. Thousands of bombs were planted in, in uh, Hong Kong, but actually only 15 people. I say only, but I mean, if you think about how many people there are in Hong Kong and if you're blowing up buildings, you, you'd expect the death count to be higher. There were only 15 uh, people killed, 15 um, civilians killed and 10 police and many many more were wounded the um i think the police actually probably showed great restraint in the face of this kind of insurgency this is probably a slight exaggeration of the kind of scenes that you were seeing but it, it served this film the purpose of this film very well because really what i think john Wu is like trying to put across is that there is in the heart of men of any nation this capacity for violence and and mindlessness that people would go out in the streets and go to fight or uh, in the streets or go to war and he's reflecting the fact that it can happen in Hong Kong and then later we see uh, an exaggerated and expanded version of the same kind of conflict happening in Vietnam. John Woo I think is a incredibly intelligent and um, sensitive filmmaker and one reason I think he constantly looks at issues of violence and bloodshed is that he looked at it as war and war does have a purpose. It makes men know themselves. I mean, you know yourself through war. People know themselves. I think it's a particularly timely message at the moment because, as I said here in 2003, almost 2004, when you look around the world, you actually see that people are at war as much as they ever have been. And so films like this with the messages and the ideas that they share are kind of particularly timely because I think we need to re-examine why constantly uh, the world is at conflict. And one reason, one of the things that comes from war is that people actually have to confront their values in a very extreme way and what they believe in and who they are. And this film really is about that because it's about these three characters who go off to war and each one is changed irrevocably in a very different way. And the Tony Learn character is probably the one who uh, shows the most emotional maturity in, the, in his morality, his journey in terms of his morality is the most positive one and the other two go down different roads but this is what John Woo is trying to communicate and I like what I like about his films is the fact that though you could point to them and say there is darkness there is violence Be beyond that there is hope and there is also uh, an idea being expressed it's not violence for the sake of violence and blood for the sake of blood it's actually uh, all of those 
that that kind of very rich palette of paint with which you you kind of coats the screen but it's towards the end of actually exploring these ideas which is not something you can say of every filmmaker working in the action genre certainly many of the filmmakers working in American action cinema over the last couple of years there's not really much of an intelligence going on apart from the desire to show off stunts and explosions and, and visual effects very striking moment here as the lovers are separated and uh, there's a payoff later in the movie but uh, I won't give it off now but I mean uh, obviously there's something there's another level to this when you see the film a second time the parting of Fenny Yoon's character and Tony Leung it's got like different relevance to it but I think Tony Leung the wonderful thing about him is that uh, I, I mentioned this in other commentaries about actors that some actors are like an open book and their face is like an open book and some like a closed book and Tony Leung his face is definitely an open book and you can read whatever his character is meant to be feeling on it and this certainly stood him in good stead when he on an action film you've got a little bit more leeway because you can run and jump around and show your emotion on uh in the mood for love for example i mean if ever if ever i did a book called in hong kong in action cinema then that would be one of the the ones to the forefront because even though it's a masterpiece there's not a lot happening in there and a lot of what happens in the movie is just what you see on the face of tony leung and maggie jung so Wong Kar i was very lucky to have actors of that caliber here we are in thailand doubling for vietnam something that the country's done many times over the years. Interesting, we get a couple of uh, movie posters coming up and I took the trouble of finding out about the films. First one is Dien Bien Phu, which was uh, actually shot in 19, uh, which was shot in 1990, which was like the same year that uh, this movie was made. So it was a very relevant film uh, at the time this film was being shot. Directed by Pierre Schoendurfer and starred, uh, among other people, Donald Pleasance. And there's the poster. It actually reflects a, the Battle of 1954, at which the French really lost p a control of uh, Vietnam. Duel de la Monde, we see there, directed by Luigi Scatini, starred the American actor Richard Harrison, a spaghetti western actor who would later move to Hong Kong and be in many, many IFD films, uh, like Ninja Thunderbolt and its many, many sequels. Here's where we do start to see scenes very reminiscent of uh, Tiananmen Square, the idea of this kind of um, forces, um, the, the Iron Fist, of these military forces locking down a civilian population. A moment there where actually we got to hear a quick snatch of music from the 60s, It's My Party and I'll Cry If I Want To, performed by Leslie Gore. So every element of the movie, this is obviously the, the youth of John Woo being recreated in various ways. So the music and the look and the style of the place is uh, is very striking. And this uh, this kind of, the, the idea of these, sui not suicide bombers, or these people actually blowing up, creating these explosions in an urban center to further their cause, something very relevant to today because even now we have in Palestine and in Iraq and various other places in the world, suicide bombers coming in and making the ultimate sacrifice for, um, for the cause, whatever cause they believe in. And it's really quite a, um, a timely reminder, I think, of the extremes that can happen if people's belief systems really uh, over overtake everything else all kind of morality all kinds of ethical values and it's just i believe in something and i'm going to die or i'm going to kill for it uh i remember this the the, the, the shoe shine box this was actually something that happened in hong kong uh, sorry in in uh, in uh, vietnam during the war these kids being used as bombers with their shoe shine boxes actually in the movie first blood there's a backstory we never actually see it but it's referred to by sylvester stallone's character rambo he talks about a time when he was in a bar and Vietnam and a kid came in with a shoeshine box and the box blows up and one of his friends was blown apart. So that was kind of referencing, both films here referencing something that actually did really happen in history in Vietnam during this era. We'll talk a bit more about the Vietnam War a little later because I think uh, 
a lot of films today are set during that era. Action films have been set during that era, and maybe modern audiences not really familiar with what the conflict was about and and what why the Americans were there and what was the background to the conflict in Vietnam. I mean, another thing people might not be aware of is the fact that prior to Vietnam being split into North and South Vietnam, it was actually a French colony, uh, French Cambodia, and it was there, in fact, that the director Choi Hark was born and spent uh, his early years before moving to Hong Kong. This is wonderfully, this is John Woo really at the height of his game as we come in here to this uh, convent school and drive out these sweet, innocent kids and here come these soldiers. And the uh, sequence that we're seeing here, partly inspired in terms of the abuse of the population by the army, partly inspired by the Tiananmen experience and also by the fact, by um, uh, I'll do a bit of uh, lead up to this because there's a shot that happens very quickly at the end of the scene. There's a famous photograph by uh, Eddie Adams, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 1968, and it's a still photograph of the execution of a supposed Viet Cong captain, whose name actually was Bay Lop, um, and he's executed by a Vietnamese officer called General Nguyen Lot Loan. And Nguyen Lot Loan actually um, survived the war and settled in Burke, Virginia. I think he was running a fast food outlet in Burke, Virginia, and he died in 1998 from cancer. But this famous photograph was taken during the Tet Offensive in Saigon and uh, it was I think probably the single image from the war that really changed public, there was one image that changed public opinion in America against the war, it was this particular image and it was like in a way it was also the birth of the power of um, war photojournalists, a photojournalist during war. This was something that uh, there'd always been people reporting on wars throughout history, but there really had been a case that they'd been reporting on behalf of their country and almost been in support of their country's position. In this particular photograph, there was like a, a sense that the photograph that the journalist had actually affected history by the fact that he'd reported this particular image. And the whole thing has a sense of it being staged. It was also captured on film. There's actually film footage of the same execution of Captain Baylop by General uh, Nguyen Lot Loan. But this sequence that we're leading up to here very much um, leads into that. The actual actors that we're seeing in the sequence are um, speaking, um, sometimes speaking Vietnamese, which has been dubbed into, so speaking Thai, which has been dubbed into Vietnamese. And Thailand often used as a, a as a kind of pseudo Vietnam, obviously very hard to shoot in Vietnam. It was it's easier now. It was very hard during the time this movie was shot, and this really is like a shot by shot uh, recreation uh, of that particular photograph, the Eddie Adams Pulitzer Prize winning photo. And then as he goes down, there's the Pieta in the background, which is Mary holding the body of Christ after Christ comes off the cross, which is uh, I think very very moving moment and a reflection really of the the things that really conflict within the mind of John Woo. On one level, the violence and brutality of mankind, and on the other, this deep Christian faith and a sense of some form of salvation. Here's the Chow Phraya River that flows through uh, Bangkok. And uh, I, I love one of the things I love about this movie is the sense that the violence in the film actually has an effect, that it changes people, and particularly the Tony Leung character, the reflection that he has. But the, each person is changed. Um, in, in the case of Jackie Jones' character, he becomes increasingly more desperate in the face of this. Here's the nightclub Bolero. I'm not sure whether the name was inspired by the 1984 Bo Derek film or the original Ravel composition, which was used in another 
Bo Derek movie, 10. All the interiors that we see here were actually shot in Hong Kong. They actually, because they were going to have a big action sequence here, it was very hard to actually stage it in uh, Vietnam, uh, sorry, in Thailand. So they actually mo built this whole set in studio space in Hong Kong. And the exteriors are in uh, Thailand and the interior that we see here is in Hong Kong. So we have our principals working in Hong Kong with all these locally hired extras, Westerners. Uh, here's a, one of our main bad guys, the guy with the slick back hair. This is our leading lady, Yolinda, L Yolinda Yam, Yan Chosin, who is a local singer and an actress. I rather think, again, goes to John Woo being unlucky with leading ladies. I mean, I, I didn't feel that she was a particularly effective as an actress, and he probably could have found somebody with a bit more presence to carry such an important role in the film. And our bad guy, who we see over there, was uh, is uh, not active in the industry anymore. The guy in the middle of the frame with the slick back hair, Leong, is played by Jung Lam, who you can also see in 1986's Legacy of Rage, opposite Brandon Lee. I think he's retired from the industry or not in the industry anymore. He may, may have passed away. He certainly not, hasn't been seen in a film for a long time. But this is one of his most memorable roles as this gangster in uh, this kind of uh, Vietnam-based Chinese gangster. Of course, there was a massive and very effective Chinese population in Vietnam before the outbreak of the war. So all of this, um, that you have an excuse here for people to be speaking Cantonese, which makes it easier in terms of communicating sequences to the audience in Hong Kong. So um, it actually has a rationale to it, whereas sometimes you do see films where they shoot overseas and everybody suddenly speaks uh, Cantonese, which is a bit strange, because even the Westerners in Hong Kong don't speak Cantonese. So uh, let alone actually um, shooting in a foreign country. So. Um, this, uh, uh, I think even uh, Sally Yip's character in The Killer was not uh, a wonderful performance and, and Sally Yip's certainly a better actress than Yolinda Yam. I think much like his mentor, Zheng Jit, the great Shaw Brothers director, John Woo really always feels that the, the balance of his films, that the energy in his films is between male characters, it's this kind of male charisma. So the women are kind of almost like, to get in the way, they're almost like a, uh, an interference. So he never really has really memorable female roles and the female roles that he does have don't tend to be cast or perform very well. So the people really become, the women really become objects rather than specific characters. I certainly, in this movie, there's like three people who are kind of in love, four if we count the bad guy, are in love with this woman. And having been to uh, Vietnam and having been to Hong Kong, uh, been to Thailand, I wonder if they couldn't have found uh, more attractive women to be in love with and four of them all in love with the same woman. They could have found four different women. Simon Yam. Wonderful, prolific actor who's uh, this year probably was at the height of his game. He was in this movie and he was in another film called Killer's Romance that I was also involved with and has been in many other films uh, since then. Recently, of course, moved into Hollywood with Tomb Raider 2. He actually, he's dubbed as saying bonsoir, but actually he says bonjour when he's talking to the piano player for this sequence. And this kind of like uh, sets things up, this idea. This is kind of, I guess, a follow-on from Better Tomorrow when we had all the guns in the flower pot. This is like a, a gun-packed piano don't shoot me I'm just the piano player and now we go into this sequence which I think is one of the greatest sequences in Hong Kong action cinema and I remember uh, showing it to an audience I was actually asked to give a lecture about Hong Kong films showing a series of clips from Hong Kong movies it's always hard you know for, for martial arts action or for um, kind of very slapstick comedy you can show a funny sequence like a Bruce Lee fight or you can show Michael Hoy fighting in the kitchen in private eyes and it works by itself as a clip Clips from dramatic movies or gunplay movies just tend to be a lot of violence, a lot of action. And they may work in the context of the film, but you take them out of context as a clip, they don't work so well. This scene goes against that in that it's uh, a wonderful example of Cocteau's statement that you never state what you can imply. 
and uh, scored again to I'm a Believer, performed by the Monkees, written by Neil Diamond. One of the great scenes on action cinema. This moment of recognition. I mean, it's just there's not a word spoken, but I think it's one of the most uh, wonderful executed scenes ever by John Woo, and the song comes in. And then you notice in a moment that he takes out the back wall so that we're looking almost like what, what would be glass. We can see through the back wall of the washroom so that we actually see the victim. We have this kind of POV coming up there where we look through what would be the glass, if that back wall was glass. So we defy the perspective for a moment. This scene also was cut down in some prints. And then the fact that he holds this shot here and then back, just the movement of the camera showing the recognition between these two figures who will be key players later in the picture. He steps out and then see the two cleanup boys coming in to take the body away and he gets his money. A slick, wonderful little sequence there. And I think maybe my favorite single scene in a John Woo film. There's a, there's a bunch, but that's definitely one of the favorites. And then, you know, this kind of little payoff that we have here. The, um, as I say, the interiors of, were all shot in uh, Hong Kong. This Catherine, the lovely Catherine Deneuve, one of the icons of this, uh, of this era and the French influence coming in here. Luke is actually quite believable as, I think Simon Yam is quite believable as a Eurasian. So he's like depicted as being half French. So that's why he has a Catherine Deneuve poster. We see him in the film speaking French, also speaking English. He also has a background in the, in the film. They, he, he refers to the fact that he used to be with the CIA. And certainly I think somebody speaking all those languages and being in the demi-monde as he is would certainly be somebody who might well have been picked up by the CIA, which was the CIA was very involved in Vietnam very early in the day uh, because it was felt that Vietnam not was not necessarily important by itself, but there was this theory at the time called the domino effect. And the domino effect stipulated that there was actually this communist conspiracy to take over the world, that the evil empire was coming. And so if uh, the countries in Asia fell, if Vietnam fell, there would be one country after the other, and eventually there would be this great block of uh, communist countries with really opposed to American influences. So the CIA was involved early on to try to support the uh, insurgencies or the counter-revolutionaries, pe counter people who opposed to the communists. So this allows, of course, for very um, interesting stories and thrillers and backdrops. So sometimes in movies in Hong Kong, it's kind of a cop-out, but it's like, I'm with the FBI, I'm with the CIA. In this particular film, it's certainly believable that Simon Yan would have those kind of connections. So here we see, uh, I mentioned earlier, this idea that the, the corruption or the, the, the fact that the violence around affects people differently. In this sequence, we see Wazy Lee's character really becoming uh, violent. He's figured out that if you've got guns, you have powers. The, the Mao Zedong doctrine, that political power comes from the barrel of a gun. And it's certainly it's being borne out in this sequence that we're going to see here. So his thing is that if we want money, we have to have guns. We have guns. We'll go and just rob people. Anybody gets in our way, we're going to shoot them. And here is this this kind of panic on the streets, this kind of the idea of this city, literally like it, like, like the title of the Ringo Lam film, it's like a city on fire, where if somebody's been accused of being uh, a communist or having communist sympathies, their shot will be destroyed, they'll be looted, their, their material stolen. So it's really a place where anything goes. So this is a, an interesting point being made by John Woo. He's echoing Wazy Lee's character's idea that power comes from a gun. And in this case, yes. And these guns are far more powerful than the guns that, that Wazy Lee is carrying. And Jackie Chung, of course, increasingly becoming desperate and wild as he's caught up in the gunfire. And he's a guy, he, he's depicted as, he's brave, but he's more happy-go-lucky of the three. 
and one who's least interested in living a life as a gangster and living a life of crime. So he's, uh, he's caught in, in the middle of all of this. So this is like a, a relatively accurate reflection of what was happening in, in Vietnam at that time. And uh, they had great support when they shot the movie in Thailand. Uh, John Woo and his team had a lot of support from Salon Films. Salon Films, uh, the company in England, uh, sorry, the company in Hong Kong that licensed out all, this, all the equipment for Panavision. They've been in working in Hong Kong since way back when. They, the first film they worked on was uh, The Sand Pebbles, which was back in the, in the early 60s. And they had just finished, at the time this movie was being made, they'd just finished uh, producing a miniseries in Thailand, which was the miniseries version of Around the World in 80 Days with Pierce Brosnan. And so they inherited many of the crew members from that. This very much reminiscent of Tiananmen Square. And also you get uh, a shot here of the monks. And this is like a reference to another key element that uh, was one of the things that uh, had uh, sparked off the worldwide interest, the worldwide uh, resistance to the war in Vietnam, was that the monks in, uh, in that country, Buddhism being a religion that's based on peace, were adamant that there had to be a way to oppose uh, war. And so uh, they set themselves on fire. And uh, there was one monk particularly who kind of sparked off this kind of revolution by setting himself on fire. And so you, you don't get that particular shot seen in this movie. You do see the monks like in the way of the tanks. And this is a, a very much a reference to that. And then we get a very, very uh, evident, iconic image in a moment when the tanks roll out. Those of you who were around during the Tiananmen Square, I've seen the footage from Tiananmen Square, will remember there's a very potent image of this long line of tanks rumbling through um, Tiananmen and this sole protester with his shopping bags. I always thought that was a very touching aspect to it. And he stood in the way of the approaching tanks to protest about them. And um, they never did really find out what the guy's name was. He was 19 years old. His name might have been Wang Wei Lin. Nobody really knew. But like a moment ago, we had that shot with the guy coming out in front of the tanks. And uh, in, in reality, the 19-year-old in Tiananmen was pulled away by bystanders and apparently was never caught, which is kind of life-affirming. I, ho I hope that's true. And there was actually a book based on him, which was a fictionalized book called um, Sons of Heaven. But it was a, um, this particular shot that we saw there, there's two reflections really from history. One is this guy standing in the line of the uh, marching, the advancing tanks, and also the idea of the monks, the, the, the self-immolation of the monks, which was a very striking image from the 60s. And I think everybody was familiar at the time that there were um, these monks, there were people actually in America who were so horrified by the war, they also set themselves on fire in kind of a, an echo of that to, um, to uh, protest about the war. The first guy to do that, the first monk to do that, his name was Thich Quang Due, and he was a 66-year-old monk who on June 11th, 1963, set himself on fire in Saigon. To, this was in protest to the oppression of the, the American-backed Diem administration. They were the guys who were opposite uh, Ho Chi Minh, who was the leader of the communists. And the Diem administration was like a puppet government supported by the Americans. So here the reflection of what was happening in Hong Kong to what was happening in, in Vietnam. The um, next sequence that we see is very prominent with our leading lady of the movie, as much as we have a leading lady for the Vietnam segment, which is uh, Yolinda Yan. Yan Chosin, who's a singer turned actress. Uh, she's in such films as Hearts No Flowers, The Black Wall, which was directed by the former Kung Fu actor Lao Ga Yung, the brother of uh, Lao Ga Le, uh, also known as Lao Ga Wing. La sorry, Lao Ga Yung is also known as Lao Ga Wing, and he's the brother of Lao Ga Le, one of the old Shaw Brothers Kung Fu masters. She's also in The Powerful Four, which also stars the stars of this movie, Simon Yam and Wei Lee. 
And she's in Chinese Torture Chamber 2, which is a softcore remake of the Shaw Brothers classic Blood Brothers, which is produced by Wong Jing, whom I mentioned earlier. Um, and also in Clarence Ford's Don't Look Back or You'll Be Sorry, which is the last film that she's made today that was shot in the year 2000. Clarence Ford, Fok Yu Leung, pretty best known internationally for producing, uh, for directing Naked Killer, which also starred Simon Yam. So, um, yeah, uh, Yolanda Yan really kind of came and went and is now uh, semi-retired from the industry. I think she still sings at nightclub openings and events like that, but really she's married and sort of out of the sequence. So here we have the backstory of the Simon Yam character, Luke, and very reminiscent in that particular shot of the kind of killers that are played, have been played in the movie The Killer by Jia Yun-Fat, the guy in the white suit who's very skilled with gunplay and very cool. And in, in The Killer, of course, rescues a singer who then becomes blinded and feels he has an obligation. So this is kind of an echo of that in this, uh, in this particular film. And very uh, kind of believable recreation of 60s Vietnam here in Thailand and this is actually to the credit of the fact that Salon Films actually had an office resi an office base in Thailand from which they operated so they weren't coming in like a foreign company trying to get stuff done they were actually coming in as a Thai company and having full access to all the locations and facilities in the Thai capital and beyond and this really enabled John Woo to bring in this kind of almost like a David Lean epic quality to the film with nothing like a, a David Lean budget Sometimes there's kind of a rushed nature to the narrative of the film. And particularly I feel that there's a jump here that we don't actually get to see these guys become the skilled gunmen that they appear to be in the subsequent sequence. And maybe there was a scene, uh, I don't know for a fact because I haven't seen every single version of the movie, but uh, there may well have been a scene when Luke, the Luke character, Simon Yam's character, actually teaches them to uh, fire the guns. But uh, there was certainly a sequence like that in Choi Hark's Vietnam movie, A Better Tomorrow 3 when uh, Nita Moy teaches Jaren Fat how to fire his guns. The, he were back in the Bolero, and uh, this very, actually very effective looking gold plate. I mean, sometimes you see gold in Hong Kong movies, it looks very fake indeed. Now, is that a bow tie, or is he being strangled by a bat? Here we get to see Luke speaking French, showing, uh, again, reflecting the fact that he's Eurasian. And you can tell there's a big action set piece coming up because all the henchmen are played by stuntmen. If the henchmen are played by normally normal extras, then you kind of know that maybe there's not going to be, you're not so sure. But if they're all stuntmen, you know, they wouldn't actually spend, stuntmen being more expensive, obviously, than extras, they wouldn't actually hire that many stuntmen unless there was a big action sequence coming up. And sure enough, there is. This is like a kind of bit of foreshadowing here. Those maps and these document documents will... Uh, play a key factor later in the film but it's being set up here which is again something you don't always see in Hong Kong movies stuff does come out of left field the uh, this uh, behavior on the part of the bad guy looks a little strange if you're uh, not familiar with Chinese customs but there's this whole business when an older guy greets younger uh, fellas to set them at, at ease he'll like laugh even though there's nothing funny going on. So this isn't like the, the typical bad guy laugh of like, you know, tying the heroin to the rail tracks. It's kind of just this kind of laugh of greeting. And then this of course sets this wonderful moment of recognition when he realizes that Tony Leung is the guy who he saw earlier talking to his girl, to uh, the, the Yolanda Yam character. But I think uh, the, having been in Hong Kong entertainment circle for a while, I think the gangster character here is based on uh, a certain number of characters in the local industry whose the, the behavior patterns and the way that they are is very similar to the way he behaves here and I think it's a very accurate reflection of some of these guys who are on the borderline of being businessmen and being gangsters. 
The script for the film was written by John Woo himself and also by Patrick Leung, Leung Pak Yin, who was also an associate producer of the movie. He would later direct Somebody Up There Likes Me, which was a boxing movie. Uh, that young lady that we see there is a subplot that obviously hit the cutting room floor because uh, we don't really get to see her again. Her name is Chen Ying. She was later a Category 3 actress. So there may have been a love scene here in one print that actually got cut out. Um, there are so many different versions, so much footage of this film that hit the cutting room floor. You see little subplots that start and then don't go anywhere. That's probably one of the few flaws of the film. The two flaws I have is that some of the casting is not as great as it might be. And the other is the fact that there are a few subplots that kind of get away from us. The um, Patrick Leung, who co-wrote the film, uh, had also later directed Somebody Up There Likes Me, which John Woo was a producer of, and also directed a very slick little thriller called Beyond Hypothermia, which was produced by Johnny Toe and got like quite a wide European release. He also directed movies like Born Wild, The Comedy La Brasiere, a film called Demi Haunted at EMG, and he soon did co-direct with the Korean Twins Effect 2, a sequel to a film called Twins Effect 1. Um, I was actually a producer on Twins Effect 1. I'm actually not a producer on Twins Effect 2, but I'm sure they do a fantastic job, particularly with the team of Akari Yun, Yun Kuei, and Patrick Leung. So now we have uh, the Chinese version of a French classic. French songs are very popular in uh, this era of Vietnam, and the song is uh, Autumn Leaves, which was written by James Cosma, lyrics by Jacques Prevert, and the song was written for a French movie, Les Portes de la Nuit, Les Portes de la Nuit, which is The Doors of the Night, of course, performed in English by the late, great Nat King Cole. The guy with his arms folded who's standing at the left of Mr. Leong there is Afai, who's still one of the Jackie Chan stuntmen to this day, one member of the Jackie Chan stunt team, and uh, you actually get to see him. I'll point him out in one of the action sequences. He is uh, the right-hand man of Zhang Ziyi in Rush Hour 2, so this is like an early example of his work. He's got a very... He's very not a good-looking guy. He's very photogenic. So I think that's one of the reasons that you sometimes see him as principal stuntman in these action sequences. Now, this is a very uh, key moment in the film for me because I remember watching it and really seeing in the the way Tony Leung goes head-to-head -head with this guy. It was a moment that he kind of starts to really take the film and take control of dramatically of the film to become the character that we really focus on because up till now, the energy's really been diffused among the three. And here, this this scene... He really goes head to head. There's actually another part of the scene that was cut that you see it on the trailer with Tony Leung with actually two guns or more at his neck, pointed at his neck, and he's like really going toe to toe with Mr. Leong, which is even stronger. It just shows that he's got no fear of this guy. So this leads into this sequence, which is very, rem very, uh, people who've been in the Hong Kong underworld will know there's this whole business about forcing somebody to drink as a punishment. I suppose if you're an alcoholic, this isn't much of a punishment. But if you're not, uh, drinking a bottle of whiskey at one go is really a way to kind of make somebody pay for their misdeeds. This leads into a scene that's cut from uh, most prints of the movie, which is based on a story, a story that we hear. We never see this in A Better Tomorrow, but we hear the story of how there were these two guys in a club and they offended the local gangsters and the gangsters made them... Um, uh, they all peed into a, a, a beer mug, so they had a beer mug full of urine, which they were going to force somebody to drink. And in the Better Tomorrow, it's the Dick Long character. So we actually, there was a sequence here that was uh, reflecting that same story. The story supposedly happened to Ringo Lam, and uh, he told the story to John Woo and Zhao Yunfan. And so Ring, they got put into that particular, into Better Tomorrow, because uh, they were all working at Cinema City at that time. And so, but it's cut here, I guess, for reasons of taste or 
for the running time of the movie. So there's, this sequence comes across as a little choppy, and there's a shot right at the end of the scene when we see Mr. Leon kind of covered, is suddenly soaking wet. Well, what's happened is they've taken the mug of pee and kind of like knocked it, uh, tipped it over his head. So now we kind of just cut all of that away so we can get to the piano full of... Uh, of uh, guns and use of a flick knife which is another weapon more a weapon of the 60s now I guess we'd be using a balasong the Filipino knife but this is like the weapon of choice and let's throw here take a look I'll explain how it was done Simon throws the knife on a wire it flies past the stuntman who already has the fake knife in his neck and him staggering back is the cue for the blood pump to start this is an old Shaw Brothers moment again it was cut from some prints as a kind of a um, I guess for because in some areas it's kind of decided it's too violent to show that. But if you actually run back and freeze frame, you'll actually see the way it was done. Knife on the wire. I mean, today it would be a CG shot and would cost like, you know, thousands, thousands of dollars. This, I think, is a Looney Tunes moment. The idea of these exploding cigars. They're the kind of things that um, Roadrunner would order from Acme. Oh, no, that, that uh, the Wiley Coyote would order from Acme to blow up Roadrunner. But I guess it works in, in the, you know, the, the, the feeling of this guy being with the CIA. Maybe he's being a CIA issue exploding cigars i really haven't seen them too often but uh, it was great that they have these kind of really conveniently placed arsenals there's one in the uh, piano and you have this one here uh, stashed away this is the private ar arsenal of the bad guy which gives them all the weapons and uh, of course the gold which becomes another factor in the film this is probably the two sequences that really stand out the three sequences in the movie that really look like they're from a gangster movie are the opening of the big fight sequence at the beginning the sequence that ends the movie and this one is really the one sequence of the movie where if you were going to show a scene to people and say does this look like a John Woo movie this would be the sequence that does and I again I feel that there was kind of the narrative was a bit rushed because it seems unrealistic for these guys to suddenly have all this skill in using not just handguns but also automatic weapons more to, more the fact that they're not um, freaked out by using the guns and, sh and shooting people though there is a nice reaction of Jackie Chung when he kills somebody for the first time but uh, the others kind of take to it really naturally which I think is perhaps unrealistic given the background established for them in the film but this shot here is a nice reaction they've been looking away because people who ever fired a gun for the first time the noise and the retort on the gun the kind of the the recoil is something perhaps you don't anticipate from watching movies where people are walking around firing two guns like it's nothing my other beef with the film, I think, is the fact that the transition of the Wazy Lee character is far too abrupt. But he initially is a relatively sympathetic character, and he's one of these three brothers. And then suddenly he becomes this money-obsessed loony. And here he is like, well, why are you saving this girl? You know, you should send her back, you know, what, you sacrifice her so we can get away with the money. And there's no transition period, really. It's just very abrupt. And I, I mean, partly, I think, also because of Wazy Lee not having, uh, necessarily having the chops as an actor, but also this is a choice that John Woo made. I imagine if that role would have been played by, for example, Tony Leung, Leung Garfai, who was still of an age where it would have been believable, it would have been a whole different interpretation. I think it would have worked a lot better and it would have strengthened that, that uh, side of the film. But um, as it is uh, scheduling at that time, in the period this movie was made, it was very hard to get actors to commit the kind of time that you would need to shoot a film of this complexity. And so um, we have this, uh, this casting here where we have two out of three actors really delivering and one not really up to up to par when the um this is actually something that people uh, uh impresarios were doing throughout asia at this period the chinese impresario they would get famous singers from hong kong sign them to these really uh, slave labor contracts and keep their passports so they can never leave the country so the passport becomes kind of an emblem of somebody's freedom and their identity 
So this is Jackie Chung's feelings towards this girl. Is she really, you know, she's the luckiest girl in town. She she has Tony Leung, Simon Yam, and even Jackie Chung kind of really attracted to her. The only guy who's not is 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 Wazy Lee. So we get to get to see if you again if you use the freeze frame on your DVD, her passport name is uh, Yan Saoqing on uh, on her passport, which is kind of quite close to her real name, which is a kind of common thing in Hong Kong that when you use an actor, you find the name that's kind of reminiscent of their of their name. Another thing I noticed in the picture, and I mean, uh, I couldn't really find any definite evidence one way or the other, but when you actually look at the interior of the club, we actually get to see some rather anachronistic neon lights. And even though they did have neon lights during this era, I don't know if they had like the kind of shaped neon that we see in some of the shots. That actually might be a little bit anachronistic and a, a rare lapse for um, the art director, James Lerne. Costume designer for the film was Bruce Yu, and he's very restrained here. I mean, I work with Bruce Yu on Gen X Cops and Gen Y Cops, and right now he's working on New Police Story with Jackie, and he's really into these very extravagant outfits. But here, he very much captures the mood of the times, and which is which is called for. I mean, you really want to see people dressing as they would have been dressing, believably, in the 1960s. And so he captures that very well indeed. But a uh, great restraint compared to the other films that he's worked on. He did a similarly very good job on with Ringo Lam on City on Fire. Bruce Yu was the costume designer for that movie as well. This sequence, as I mentioned, very much akin to the kind of action that we see in the, your, your usual John Woo movie. He edited the film himself working with David Wu. That shot there, that blue, the blue neon, I thought the blue neon maybe was a little bit out of, this blue neon here was a little bit out of, out of time. But anyway, this sequence, uh, the DP for the, the director of photography, Horace Wong, Wong Wing Hang, who would also be, who was also DP on Better Tomorrow 1 and 2, Chinese Ghost Story, The Killer. So you see very much that particular style. And uh, it's interesting in this movie, looking at the four cinematographers at work and seeing who's really responsible for what. But I think Horace Wong, Wong Wing Hang's style really um, coming to the fore here. The last big movie I know of him working on, Black Mask 2, which was also shot in Thailand, directed by Choi Hark. As I mentioned, this all edited by John Woo himself, and actually the only award that they actually won at the Hong Kong Film Awards for this film, this classic movie, the only award won was for best editing. I mean, all the other big awards went to um, Wong Kar Wai's Days of Being Wild. So um, best editing, I don't know if they were uh, not just awarding it for the editing of the film itself, but the, the speed with which John Woo re-edited the film and put it back into theaters after the first print of the film hadn't really worked. So uh, he edited the film also with David Wu. David Wu, the most eclectic man in Hong Kong show business, and uh, we'll talk a bit more about him later, but uh, he worked with John Wu most of the major action films of John Wu and really pioneered a new way of editing gunplay action, one that's really had an influence on action filmmaking up to this day. So our bad guy gets his just comeuppance in his, uh, in his underwear, so uh, there's a real... Um, you know, a sense of uh, some kind of natural justice happening here. Here we cut when we're in the interiors here, we're in Hong Kong, and then when we go outside, we're back in Thailand. Production manager for the films, the wonderful names of people in, in on, on Thai movies, the production manager was Penny Kanka Pinchote, Kanka, Pin, Kanka Pinchote, and uh, also working with Thong Turd Mahasuwan, and they were both on the 1989 uh, Around the World in 80 Days miniseries, which had been, as I mentioned earlier, was produced by Salon. So they really had like a, um, the whole team came over to collaborate with them on, uh, better, on, on, on Bullet in the Head and to great advantage for the film because they really got, uh, as we're seeing it, literally some bang for your buck in terms of uh, shooting in Thailand. So that's the last of our shots in Hong Kong for the time being as they get uh, the car, indeed, period car, which uh, fits with the time. Here we are back in 
Thailand. They had full access to military vehicles here. So you actually go out now onto the roads in Thailand. And uh, the voices we hear in the sequence upcoming, we get these English voices dubbed on the Cantonese print. There's a couple of guys who work in Hong Kong doing dubbing, uh, Simon and Jack. And uh, they actually call themselves the two guys. They're two guys, and they call the two guys. And their voices are very familiar. Anybody who's watched the dubbed print of a Hong Kong film for this era, there's uh, a, another guy called um, Bill Oliver, and there's these guys, the two guys. And they really were responsible for the English versions of a lot of movies of this era. And so you hear their voices for this sequence. In fact, dubbing also, even though Simon Yam does speak pretty good English, they're dubbing him, and they're also dubbing the American soldier for this exchange here, which is the reference to him being CIA. I don't know that he'd be able to show a CIA pass to a ranking US officer and actually to be allowed past a checkpoint like this. But anyway, it works for, for the movie. So we get that moment there. First AD on the film was uh, Charlie Sunkawes, who was also second AD on the Oliver Stone film, Heaven and Earth, which also shot in Thailand. And also would work on Tomorrow Never Dies, the James Bond film shot there with Michelle Yeoh, and also The Beach, which was I think the last big American film, The Beach, and after that was... Uh, Steven Seagal's movie, Belly, Belly of the Beast, which was shot by Ching Su Dong this year. But Thailand always been a great location. John Woo, of course, earlier had shot another war movie, a far inferior war movie called uh, Hero Shed No Tears, a.k.a. Sunset Warriors, back when he was really trying to find his metier at Golden Harvest, when he was really trying to find his way. He was initially billed, of course, as the new king of comedy, which seems ridiculous now. But he did shoot a war movie that, that st starred Eddie Ko, Ko Shun, that was shot in Thailand. There's Eddie Koshan, I remember Lam Ching Ying, and really, I guess it's interesting re-release now because you can compare it with this movie and of course later with Wind Talkers in terms of the John Woo war films, but it was far inferior. And you can see here probably the realization of ideas that John Woo had back in the time of Hero Shed No Tears, which he didn't have the budget to, um, to deliver on, but now he could have tanks and later we see helicopters, we have these big explosions. But really a major epic set piece for a Hong Kong picture of this era, particularly a Hong Kong movie where you don't have Jai Yun-Fat, you don't have Leslie Jung or one of the other great leading men of this era, and you have these unknowns and really great faith and uh, this sequence here of them kind of throwing money to these poor refugees, these poor people running in the face of war. Great production value and all of this, a lot of this military hardware left over uh, in, in, in the region after the Vietnam War, but uh, they had the full support of the Thai armed forces and so they could call upon both troops and equipment and, and all the other things that you would need. And Thailand also these wonderful vistas that we see here which lend itself to um, a big epic scope to the movie. Here's the uh, River Kwai which uh, lends its name to the famous the David Lean epic bridge on the River Kwai and this is the most the, the largest and the major tributary flowing through uh, Thailand but here doubling for a river that would run through Vietnam. Later we used to see the riverboat, and I always wonder if that was uh, inspired in part by, uh, everybody always refers to this film, and particularly the prison camp sequence that we see later in the movie, as being inspired by Michael Cimino's movie, The Deer Hunter. But the riverboat, I wonder if the riverboat was inspired by Apocalypse Now, because both films had been released before, uh, Apocalypse Now was released in 1979, so it was actually released way before this movie came out and The Deer Hunter was in 1978. So both of those films were like kind of the yin and yang of American Vietnam War movies and had played in Hong Kong and had a 
profound effect on various filmmakers here. So, and here we have this girl really surrounded. I mean, as in her dying moments. I mean, if you've got to go, then it's it's great to be surrounded by the likes of you. And and, and you're a girl. You've got Tony Leung in love with you, and Simon Yam, and Jackie Chan, who looks like with a push, he might be might be into you as well. So, uh, and I found this really kind of um, un unbelievable that this particular girl had done anything in the film to warrant this kind of adoration. I think they kind of felt that too, which is why they put the song in. But even the song really didn't do it for me. This was actually, it's extraordinary to believe this because his performance is so assured. This was actually Simon Yam's sixth film. Uh, he made a movie called Killer's Romance in London the same year. And he supports 10 kids in Bangkok. I'm not sure whether this actually stems from this period of his life. But one of the things he does with all his money is he actually puts 10 kids through school in Bangkok and educates them and, and takes care of them and uh, very reflective of Simon and the kind of the broad interest he has as a humanitarian, as a photographer. He's done a lot of films. I mean, he's done a lot of films. He's done a lot of bad films, but he's uh, also, I think he's really um, somebody who on his day is one of the finest screen actors that we have. This character, very this this scene, very tough, and the actors really rising or not to the occasion. I feel Jackie Chan kind of lost in this sequence. Here's the Apocalypse Now riverboat coming to the rescue with the perfect timing. By the way, it's interesting, you know, when you look at film history, you can never believe coincidences. There was actually this movie, which was shot in Hong Kong under the title Deep Hoot Gai Tao, but given the title Bullet in the Head for, for reasons that will become evident later in the movie. There was actually another film set in a war setting, which was called Bullet in the Head, which was filmed in Canada the same year. I mean, what are the odds against that? And those are the only two films called Bullet in the Head that I could find that had actually been made. So uh, you kind of, you look at that and you just go, well, you know, truth really is stranger than fiction. The film's title actually inspired a couple of other things. It inspired a book by my fellow writer, friend, uh, occasional uh, com fellow uh, commentary, and he's not my co-commentary, but he's done a few DVD commentaries before, Stefan Hammond. He did a book called Sex Zen and A Bullet in the Head, which kind of referenced the, the title of this movie. So here we go into our one of our war sequences, one of our big action sequences in the movie, rather than the kind of gunplay we saw in the nightclub, but kind of uh, this rather unrealistic standoff between these attacking forces and our, and our heroes. The official years of the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1975, so this film falls well within that period. Before that, as I mentioned earlier, Vietnam was a French colony, and this was where Choi Hart was born. And um, the North Vietnamese were led by Ho Chi Minh, who was vilified during the war by the Americans on the basis that you know, his communist leader and the communists were the devils who wanted to take over first Asia, and then if they could, they'd be this evil empire that took over the world. He, Ho Chi Minh really didn't have any great allegiance to communism and initially tried to gain independence for Vietnam through legal means. Worked with the American forces during World War II, so there's this great tradition of people working with America who later turned against them. I won't cite any of the others. This isn't a political treatise, so I won't cite any of them. And I'm a great defender of and lover of American culture and the American dream, but in this particular point of history, there was a fact that um, the North Vietnamese later were led by Ho Chi Minh, who had earlier been a supporter of uh, America. But his cries, his, his demands for Vietnamese independence from France fell on deaf ears from Churchill, from Roosevelt, from the other leaders. And so in, finally he was forced to turn to uh, China and to the communists in the region for support in his bid to come to have a, a free Kampuchea or what would later become a free Vietnam. 
1953, the French forces were decimated at Dien Bien Phu, which I mentioned earlier, which was the basis of that film, the poster of which we saw earlier in the movie. Then the following year, in 54, there was the division of North and South Vietnam. And uh, the South was led by President Ngo Dinh Diem, who was like a puppet leader. Basically, the only great thing about Diem was that he was not a communist, and that's all you kind of needed to be in that era to get the support of America and others of the Western powers. By 1963, Kennedy had lost faith. Uh, President Kennedy had lost faith with Diem's government. It was obvious that he couldn't effectively rule uh, a reunited Vietnam. So the, he was assassinated, and the CIA itself supported the assassination of Diem. And then um, Lyndon Johnson, uh, it was like just three weeks after that, that Kennedy himself was assassinated, um, which, of course, leads to all these conspiracy theories that he, one of the reasons that Kennedy was assassinated was to propagate this war in, in Asia that was going to prevent this domino principle. But Lyndon Johnson, who was the vice president who succeeded Kennedy, very much was a firm believer in the domino principle, the idea that the countries would fall one by one, it would be the end of the world as we knew it. And so he sent further U.S. forces into Vietnam, and that uh, began the, the officially the war in 1965, the war beginning in 65, going through to 75, the 10 long years, and this slow process by which the, um, the, uh, the, Americans, the American people lost faith with the war in Vietnam. And we have a very similar echo in history now, I think, with the situation in Iraq, when there's probably a feeling that the Americans might get bogged down in a, an ongoing irresolvable conflict and one that would be very unpopular with the American people. So that image, tragic image there of the passport being lost, the girl floating away. I was kind of, if I separate myself from the narrative of the film, I'm kind of relieved to see her go because she wasn't much of an actress and she did indeed get in the way of the bond between the brothers. But here we have this, um, the kind of the real, everybody, this wonderful reflective moment, which is something that John Woo is very good at doing in his films. And he has a big action set piece, and then you have like a reflective moment in which the impact of the violence, the impact of the bloodshed actually takes its toll on the, the combatants themselves, on the people who've been involved. Whereas sometimes in Hong Kong movies, you get a sense that they're rushing on to the, to the next action sequence and something that John Woo avoids, particularly in this film. The film has a beautiful look to it, and uh, just credit the other, I mentioned earlier, Horace Wong, because we've seen quite a bit of his work in the early part of the film. The other DPs working on the film, the directors of photography, basically the director of photography, we can say is the cameraman or the guy who's choosing ha what lens to use and, and, and where to position the camera and working with the director to actually physically film the movie. Um, was One of them was Adi Lam, Lam Kwok Wah, who worked as camera operator on The Protector, a Jackie Chan movie shot for the American market, and also Maximum Risk, the Jean-Claude Van Damme film, that uh, Ringo Lam shot in the West. That was a, he was a camera operator on both those movies, and he was deep, full DP on the Jackie Chan film Thunderbolt, his car race movie, and also Ringo Lam's film Full Alert. So uh, impressive resume. This Mexican standoff was actually the video sleeve image that was used on the the first video release of the film Bullet in the Head when it was released in England. So this was actually the the Mexican standoff, which again has different resonance now because I think Reservoir Dogs kind of reestablished the Mexican standoff in international cinema, and we know that Quentin, obviously Quentin Tarantino, was a huge fan of Asian cinema. So there's this movie and also um, Ringo Lam City on Fire, where we have the the famous Mexican standoff. Never quite sure why it's called a Mexican standoff. So if you are specifically a Mexican standoff, I think we should retitle it the Cantonese standoff. But if anybody knows why it's called a Mexican standoff, please write into to Hong Kong Legend and let me know. Getting back to the DPs, uh, also Wilson Chan, Chan Poi Kai, who also shot some of Once Upon a Time in China uh, for Choi Hark, which a film which had a huge number of DPs working on it. 
These sequences we see in Thailand were shot by a Thai DP called Somchai Kitikum, who was introduced to John Woo by um, uh, by Charles Wang of Salon, of Salon Films. And I think a really good choice to use a Thai uh, DP because you're dealing with somebody who totally understood not just who had not only got his own crew who he could collaborate with more uh, quickly and easily, but also who had like a, um, a sense of what the lighting was going to be like in shooting in Bangkok and what areas were like in Bangkok and really saved a lot of time in terms of knowing the lighting and the environment of the place. And I think it pays off in the film itself. This is probably the worst scene in terms of acting in the movie because Wazy Lee's really going over the top uh, with this particular sequence. But um, hey, kind of everything. And I remember when I interviewed John Woo about it, he just, yeah, you know, Wazy Lee was okay. Uh, probably could have been better. But John Woo is the nicest man on the planet. And uh, even though he declines to do a commentary, he's still the nicest man on the planet. And so he wasn't going to say anything bad about uh, about anybody working on the film, even even Wazy Lee. So here's another amazing, uh, amazingly edited action sequence. John Woo editing the film with David Woo. David Woo, let's just mention, this is not David Woo, by the way, the guy who's an actor and MTV guy, the VJ. Um, this is actually another David Woo who's had the most ec eclectic job in Hong Kong show business. He composed the music score for a film called Best Friend of the Cops, which starred Alex Mann. He worked on the sound for The Killer, which he also edited. He wrote Bride with White Hair, among other films, for Ronnie Yu. He acts in uh, Once a Thief, the movie Once a Thief that John Woo shot in France. He's like plays the auctioneer in Once a Thief. He produced the pilot, TV pilot for the series Blackjack, which starred Dolph Lundgren, that was produced by John Woo and Terence Chang. He was the second unit director on Ring on um, the film Bride of Chucky, which was directed by Ronnie Yu. He edited Brotherhood of the Wolf for Christoph Gans, and he directed the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles TV miniseries. I mean, there is no end to this man's talents, and lives most of the time in Canada now, which explains the, the, the Canadian credits at the tail end of his resume. Um, this is just a, a sampling of the things he's done. And on top of that, he edited this movie and many of the other John Woo films, and it could be, it could very well be argued that he kind of redefined the editing um, of action cinema in general. The sequence here with uh, Simon Yam when he's running through the, the, the jungle, kind of firing away at the, uh, at the other rebels. I mean, this always reminds me of the scene in Platoon, Oliver Stone's Platoon, when Willem Dafoe is like running through the jungle and, and shooting at people. It's kind of doesn't work dramatically, but I mean, uh, it's just a great image. And if anybody's going to run through the jungle shooting people in a white suit, I think Simon Yam is, is the guy. And uh, it works for that reason. As I mentioned earlier, the writers for the film, John Woo himself. Um, John Woo, born 1st of May 1946 in Guangzhou, raised in Hong Kong, uh, later was the protege of Zheng Ji, one of the great directors at Shaw Brothers. And he struggled in his early career to find a find what would be the genre that would really make his name. He was doing comedy films at Golden Harvest. He directed an opera film, Princess Chengping. Finally, he did A Better Tomorrow at Cinema City, and that was the film that really made his name and established him as this new director initially of gangster films. And this is really kind of the whole uh, John Woo white-suited hitman transposed into the jungle. And really, that uh, shot there almost killed Simon Yan. His hair was on fire. He had to be kind of extinguished afterwards. And he, he just said he really became aware of the extremes of, of John Woo filmmaking. The John Woo afterwards came up to him and said, how was that? Look great. You know, and Simon Yan was saying, yeah, it made me look great, but my hair was on fire. And uh, he was like, yeah, yeah, but still, it looked fantastic, though, didn't it? And uh, so that was his kind of real baptism by fire in terms of working with John Woo. And it's a shame they've not worked since. I mean, I guess there wasn't really any role uh, in a John Woo film that really 
fitted the particular talents that Simon Yam has. Though I think he was very well cast opposite Jayun Fat in, Ring, in Ringo Lam's film Full Contact, which was also shot on location in Thailand. I mean, he, that was actually a very strong role for him. Another writer on the film is Janet Chun, uh, about which I don't know a huge amount. She also wrote a film for my friend Dante Lam in 1999, which is When I Look Upon the Stars. And I don't know much about that movie either. I'm actually working as an actor on a TV series, which Dante's directing. I'm working on it tomorrow. So I will ask him on that day about When I Look Upon the Stars. But I don't know much about that picture. She was one of the writers working on this movie. This sequence here, the... Uh, that was very much inspired and is always re referenced as being inspired by sequences in a prison camp in Michael Cimino's The Deer Hunter. Always strikes me, that's Ho Chi Minh, by the way, who I referred to earlier, who was the, the father of the, the northern Vietnamese, regarded as the father of communism in the north of Vietnam, and was uh, the bad guy as far as the Americans were concerned in the Vietnam War. This sequence, um, always referenced to Michael Cimino's The Deer Hunter, I always think it's very similar to a scene in Samo Hong's action film, Samo Hong's Vietnam film, Eastern Condors, which was shot in 1986, and, and way before this movie. And I don't know if um, you know where the, the lines of influence lie. Maybe everybody had seen uh, in 78, they'd watched The Deer Hunter, and this had stuck in their minds. They'd seen Rambo, they'd seen The Deer Hunter. And so everybody in Hong Kong like had a kind of a war movie or a Vietnam-style film. Uh, this film originally, it's hard to believe looking at it now, but the original concept, it was planned as a prequel to A Better Tomorrow in which we would see the young life of the Mark Gore character played in the film by uh, Jai Yun-Fat. And he'd go back and you'd see him during the Viet Vietnam of this era and kind of learning his craft and learning to be a gunman and this naive youngster kind of growing up. And uh, it moved away from that. And so it became the film with these three, an ensemble film with these three characters. But Choi Hark, who had been the producer on uh, the first Better Tomorrow and on The Killer, after The Killer's success, he fell out for reasons that never really been that clear. He fell out with John Woo, and so they kind of did their rival Vietnam movies. And so you had a Choi, you had Choi Hark's Vietnam movie, which is a Better Tomorrow three, which kind of covers some of the same ground. It's more of an urban film than this one, uh, with Jay Yun Fat and we have this picture but this sequence all of it very similar very <coughs> reminiscent to eastern condors i've actually seen eastern condors a few more times than i've seen the deer hunter so probably there's material in the deer hunter to which this is very familiar deer hunter of course was shot on location in thailand doubling for vietnam whereas sam o hong used the philippines doubling for for vietnam the um there's also i think some problems with the time in the movie i mean in terms of like the narrative time the discrepancies. For example, we keep cutting here to sequences showing Simon Yam's character, Luke, fighting with the South Vietnamese army. And there's the idea that he's coming to the rescue. But it, it feels like in his narrative, more time has passed than has passed in the narrative for the prisoners. I mean, it doesn't feel like they're in the prison camp for that amount of time for him to have joined this freedom fighting force, to him to risen to lead a unit and, and all the stuff that we actually get to see. And even later in the film, there's also another issue of narrative, I think, with the time in which Tony Leung is meant to be recovering in the monastery and when he goes back to Bangkok, uh, or in the movie that's back into, um, into, uh, you know, into uh, Saigon, that he doesn't seem to have, been, when he goes back to Hong Kong, it feels like a long time has passed, years have passed. But in, in narrative time in Vietnam, it doesn't feel like he's been doing anything for that amount of time. So these are some of the narrative discrepancies. And I think partly it's because it was an epic that, uh, and epics always do have these elements to them, these particular challenges. And secondly is the fact that the film actually ha had been so, so heavily cut 
initially by John Woo himself and subsequently for different reasons for different territories so that there are things that probably would make sense ha was there a more widely seen long version of the film I mean, the longest version that I've heard of is 136 minutes so this sequence is the one that's always cited as being the most striking of the film and it really is you know, almost painful to watch this sequence here and the kind of the corruption of the character of Jackie Chung he is singled out sometimes for criticism as an actor and there are some scenes in the movie where I think he is unsure but this particular sequence I think he really hits the right notes it's very hard to do hysteria I mean to, to play a sustained sequence of hysteria without going over the top and I think he does a very good job I mean he's probably underrated as an actor Jackie was actually born on the 10th of July 1961 made his debut in Where's Officer Tuber opposite Sammo Hong then he worked with Wong Kar Wai on the kind of dra period drama as tears go by uh, and also on Days of Being Wild. These are the films that really made the name of Wong Kar Wai. You needed somebody like Jackie Chung in the picture. Jackie was such a popular singer, a huge singing star. You put him in the movie and, and people would actually go and see the, the film. So he really helped put Wong Kar Wai on the map. He made his action movie debut opposite Donnie Yen in Tiger Cage. Also worked for Choi Hark on the first Swordsman movie. And is also visible opposite Stephen Chow, Chow Sing Chi, in Curry and Pepper, which is like a comedy action film. And then Chinese Ghost Story 2, films like Point of No Return, once Upon a Time in China for Choi Hark, Ashes of Time for Wong Kar Wai. I mean, for a guy who's known as being a singer, he's been in some really prestigious films with some really great directors. One of the best movies I've seen him in as an actor was a very hard-edged uh, thriller called Private Eye Blues. And he has a great role in High Risk where he, he kind of plays up the fact that he has this kind of slight physical resemblance sometimes to Jackie Chan. Um, in High Risk, he's playing like a pseudo Jackie Chan character, which is uh, it's a lot of fun to watch. He was in Anne Hoy's film, July Rhapsody, in 2002, and then really took a, a break from filming. He's married to the former actress May Law. Uh, May Law is now retired from films to be Mrs. Jackie Jung, and they have a, a little daughter. So he kind of semi-retired. Just came back recently. He's in the film Golden Chicken 2, opposite Sandra Mm, mm Kuan Yu. But he's still been singing in that era, but he wasn't really taking a lot of time to go and do films because I think films, filmmaking is more time-consuming. But this really is him playing at the at the height of his powers, I think, as an actor, in that uh, this sequence particularly could have been almost laughable in the hands of somebody who really didn't take it to the edge. And uh, and he does, and I, I don't understand why so many people have criticised him. The Wazy Lee performance, I can see where there are flaws. With this sequence, it's just really, it's intense. But the pitch of it is really good. Also, the scoring of the sequence. I mean, full respect to Romeo Diaz and James Wong, for the fact that they have a score that is kind of supportive rather than intrusive to a sequence like this. It's really very striking. And also Tony Leung's performance here, he really uh, delivers in this film and, and, and the movie really, his journey in the film is so much the heart of the film itself. He is the kind of the conscience of the movie and the reflection of what the audience is feeling at any given time. And he really sells that very well. So why is he, of course, selling out? Because he's, uh, he's, he wants the gold. And it's like a, um, as I say, war really reflecting everybody's particular distinctive things. Why is he, Lee, uh, Lei Chi Hong, born 19th of December 1959, made his debut also as a kind of turncoat character in John Woo's film A Better Tomorrow. Did good work in The Big Heat, which was uh, ghost-directed by Choi Hark and who knows how many other people. He also worked for Kirk Wong on the movie Gunman. This guy, by the way, the victim here, looks just like... To, to me, anyway, he looks just like Dennis Hopper at the end of Apocalypse Now. Both the, 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 the makeup and costume, I don't know whether that's an intentional reference, but it's a really powerful scene, very strong sequence. 
Back to Wazy Lee, he um, worked for Kurt Wong Gunmen. You can also see him opposite Michelle Yeoh and Donnie Yen in Wing Chun. Recent, recent years, he's been a TV actor at TVB, and he was very popular at a show about firemen. There was like a fireman TV series, and he, he worked very well on that. He actually made six films with Cynthia Khan, Young Lai Ching, who was the martial arts actress who followed Michelle Yeoh. So, you know, you wonder why there was that particular link between them. He's also in the films Running Out of Time for Johnny Toe, and the last film made by Leslie Cheung, which was the late, great Leslie Cheung, which was Inner Senses. Now this is like uh, really strong, strong work from uh, Tony Leung. And uh, this film probably is his calling card because if you look at his film work prior to this movie, he'd really been doing lighter, relatively uh, more genre work. I mean, his, uh, the idea of him as a really a major theatrical dramatic actor, somebody who could carry a film, hadn't really been established. But now, after this movie, he was really no looking back and uh, he's in some of the finest films of all time. Hard Boiled, Chungking Express, the swordplay film Ashes of Time, which also has uh, Jackie Chung in it for Wong Kar Wai. Wonderful film produced by Johnny Toe called The Longest Night, which is directed by Patrick Yao. He had a nice comic turn in 2000 in Tokyo Raiders. In The Mood for Love, I mentioned, in Hero, and of course Infernal Affairs 1 and 3. One, number 3 is in theatres as I speak, and he turns in a fantastic performance there. So he's really an extraordinary, extraordinary actor. Great longevity of career, great range of different performances and this is the movie that really puts him on the map I've seen a number of uh, reviews mentioning a Russian roulette sequence and saying that you know there was a Russian roulette scene similar to what we see in the deer hunter with Michael Cimino obviously there's no Russian roulette scene here I know it was a, a deleted scene there was Russian roulette in Eastern Condors which was probably more obviously influenced by the deer hunter but what we're seeing here is uh, this uh, these guys being forced to kill the prisoners and uh, really a very uh, one-sided view of the North Vietnamese. Uh, at the time, in America, there was this, there was an attempt made to demonize the, the North Vietnamese army. But they were fighting for their homes like anybody, and they were no more bad guys than the soldiers on the front line on the foreign side. They're just people with a different uh, ideology. But I think Jane Fonda got in trouble when the deer hunter came out for coming out and saying there was no evidence that uh, there'd ever been uh, American soldiers forced to play Russian roulette by their captors, by the North Vietnamese captors, that there was brutalities on both sides, but uh, that was the nature of war. Now, of course, there's been, a, a, over the years, a great reevaluation of the American involvement in Vietnam, particularly in the light of the, the recent Iraq war. So um, the, a film like this probably has different resonance than it would have done had you tried to, because shortly after the Vietnam War, you couldn't get a Vietnam-themed film into production. And so you had things, scripts like Rambo, and other movies, the first Blood, the first Rambo movie, First Blood. These scripts were circulating Apocalypse Now. The idea was originally they were going to shoot Apocalypse Now while the war was still being fought. And uh, you had to wait really for the, the tide of public opinion to turn so that you could actually uh, produce the film. This is actually a great moment between these two guys and uh, really kind of on the edge filmmaking from John Woo. This is him really singing at the, at the, with the purity of his range and uh, I think people when they go and see the film unlike most Hong Kong films where it's this kind of real vicarious experience here you really feel you've gone on a journey with the characters that seeing the film actually is a, a, a I remember when I saw Midnight Express and when I saw The Deer Hunter and Apocalypse now having the same feeling that you'd actually gone 
the, the, the process of watching the film that you'd been on some kind of journey yourself rather than just living vicariously through the characters in the film and this movie of John Woo's really delivers on that because and very clever the way that he actually sets up at the beginning three very ordinary young men from Hong Kong and then we see later they're put in these truly extraordinary circumstances and how each of them in turn reacts though I say this is really kind of kind of takes a step into kind of Hollywood filmmaking because it's totally unrealistic that three guys really are going to take over an armed camp quite as easily as this so the heroes of the hour some nice stunt work from the local Thai stuntmen now the helicopter sequences here some of the helicopter shots are stock footage so normally you can see a slight different grain to some of the shots but when you get the wider shots of these kind of the helicopters thundering along the river those are those are that stock footage they actually obtained to put into the film but there are a couple of shots whenever you see the principles or when you see actual specific locations with helicopter this is stock footage when you actually see the actual um, players in the same shot as the helicopter that's real helicopters that they did actually manage to hire and use during the shoot in in Thailand but it's very cleverly done and you probably wouldn't know without some smart aleck like me telling you about it again the American English dialogue that we hear uh, in the helicopters is recorded by the two guys these two dubbing artists who do a lot of American voices for Hong Kong films and uh, probably also did the full dubbed English version of this movie as well but certainly they do all the incidental English voices that we hear along the way for the helicopter attack here and this again inspired I think in part by the incredible helicopter sequence in Apocalypse Now but they don't use obviously Ride of the Valkyrie or any other similar music but a very again a very subdued very non inobtrusive score and to the credit of uh, the film the, 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 the music is so fitting to the theme of the film because there there have been really quite well made Hong Kong movies where for some reason they felt the need to drop in a Cantonese pop song in the background and it's kind of to me anyway destroyed the uh, the strength of the sequence because you you really are um, kind of at a loss to why you should be listening to somebody singing some syrupy ballad as people are being killed left right and center to mention another associate producer on the film is Catherine Lau who had experience working in Southeast Asia on films in uh, Thailand and elsewhere she began her career as an actress in the Godfrey Ho's film Commando Fury and was an associate producer on uh, both Bullet in the Head and also Dragon from Russia so uh, she was actually somebody working behind the scenes to make this film a reality that's one of the things in w when you actually watch a film with this kind of complexity you have to think about the huge background support staff that they need to actually bring it to the screen particularly shooting in two countries and over the length of time they did and probably in terms of ambition definitely the most um, the most the biggest uh, the most ambitious film that was produced by John Woo during his time in Hong Kong to date Though of course we are all hoping that he comes back to do another uh, movie here in due course and uh, and, and use all the facilities and talent that we still have here in Hong Kong this film as well as inspiring the title of the book Sex Zen and a Bullet in the Head the title Bullet in the Head also inspired a song by the American band Rage Against the Machine they have a song called Bullet in the Head which I happen to believe is inspired by this movie several filmmakers of course have shot films in Asia um, from America I mean coming over here because it's cheaper and you can get away with more things logistically James Lickenhouse the director of The Protector told me when he was shooting a movie in the Philippines that he got uh, he found that he was for a couple of days the actual commander of the largest military force in Asia that he could have actually taken over a small country had he so decided to do that instead of making a movie great pyrotechnics by the way has to be mentioned I mean uh, in, in 
previous films shot in uh, Hong Kong, you'd actually had kind of explosion sequences in urban areas, and to a certain extent you could do explosions out in the new territories, but you certainly couldn't do anything on this level. I mean, the other major pyrotechnic in a Hong Kong film of relatively similar vintage would be the end of Police Story 2 with Jackie Chan when he blows up that warehouse. This is stock footage. I mean, all the stuff you see of the um, interiors of planes is actually from... Uh, some of it's actually World War uh, footage from Vietnam, from the actual war itself of Americans firing at the, at the ground below from the gunships. This material here where you see Tony Leung in the foreground and the, the choppers coming down over the river, this is actually this great shot here when you really feel that... Uh, if he hadn't ducked down slightly, he would have taken the top of his head off. This is real footage from uh, from the uh, from the location shoot in Thailand. Now, of course, probably if you were going to put a helicopter over somebody's head, it would be one of those ghastly CGI helicopters. And, of course, nobody can tell it's not real. And I just always wonder, you know, I guess it's like the emperor's clothes. I, I'm pretty, I think most of the audiences now are pretty clued into the fact that some stuff they're seeing is not real. So uh, it's cool when you see a movie like this shot in the era when really... There was no CGI, and special effects technology really was used to the minimum, so kind of what you saw was, was what you got. And so there was a sense of reality that perhaps has been lost now in action filmmaking, that so much of what we do is actually produced by a computer. You kind of maybe have to be a computer to appreciate the film. But this is all like very, uh, got real ver verisimilitude. It's got like an authenticity to it that is uh, lacking, I think, in some of the other war movies that are shot during this era by American companies and they really John Woo gets down and gritty with these particular sequences and uh, it's got like almost a documentary feel to it plus the fact that of course he's intercutting with occasional shots of uh, stock footage so that adds to the, the feeling that what you're seeing has a reality to it Simon Yam I think was sold short in this movie the marketing campaign really for the film focuses on Tony Leung and the, the kind of triumvirate between him and Jackie Chung and Wazy Lee. And I think this is Simon Yam's finest performance, or one of his finest performances, and he kind of gets sold short on it. And this sequence here actually explains the title of the movie, Bullet in the Head, as we, uh, and it's really like shows the real horror of war. And again, this kind of poignance of the fact that there are these two friends who are the, these two childhood friends, and one of them has been corrupted to such an extent that he's prepared to shoot somebody in order to um, get away with his gold and to survive and to save his own life. So it's really an example of how war can bring out the absolute worst in people. But Simon Yam's, uh, as I say, Simon Yam really underrated as an actor. I mean, I've said this about Michael Wong and about, uh, sorry, about Anthony Wong, and it's the same also about uh, Simon Yam. It's kind of like a Michael Caine in that. And Michael Caine in his day was starring in lots of very bad films, but on his on on a good day was as good a uh, character actor, as good a dramatic actor as you could find in the industry. And I think the same is true of Simon Yam. And then this is kind of very Kurosawa moment, that stillness in the heart of war as they react to that single gunshot that is the one that's uh, shot Jackie Chung. And this again, very reminiscent of the platoon sequence. Simon Yam as this in apparently initially invulnerable uh, uh, gunman kind of fighting his way. He starts the film as a character who is really whole without. He's calm and cool and he's like slick without, but inside he's scarred. He's scarred by his failure to save the girl. He's scarred by the fact that he's in servitude to this evil gangster. At the end of the film, from this point on, on the outside he's scarred. But inside, he's been redeemed. And I think this is a wonderful shot as he looks to heaven as the choppers are coming down. And it's just really a great, great moment for him. And then 
this sequence here obviously uh, sets up the fact that uh, Wazy Lee is going to get back to Hong Kong and become like a big time gangster. Really a horrible, uh, horrible sequence here shot. This is the, uh, again, on the river, shot on the River Kwai. But this sequence when he willfully annihilates this really quite innocent Vietnamese family. And it's like the last of the atrocities and it severs the relationship between these two. Then, as I say, we get this a sequen the sequence that follows is kind of this this shot here is very is the naked child being cradled by Tony Leung. Reminds you very much of another famous iconic shot that changed the American imp uh, the American impression of the war. There was this poor naked child who'd been burnt by napalm running down the street in the in the in the, in the jungles of, of Vietnam, and that was another very powerful image and one of the other images that really. Uh, redefined photojournalism in that it actually changed the world in which it appeared. The people saw that image, they were so horrified that American planes were dropping napalm on children that it furthered the demand on the home front that America pull out of Vietnam. There's Wazy Lee's character making his getaway, and uh, in the sequence we see now in the helicopter, the voices again, it's the two guys, the, the two dubbing artists with the very distinctive American voices. In fact, in this studio I'm in now, the other studio space is taken up primarily by the movie Silverhawk, Michelle Yeoh's film, and they're actually supplying voices for that picture as well. Just shows you the longevity of people's careers here in Hong Kong. Now, this sequence here with the monks is very reminiscent of a sequence in uh, a later film, Full Contact, shot in Thailand by Ringo Lam, starring Zhao Yunfat, where Zhao Yunfat is gunned down by Simon Yam, funnily enough, and goes to recover from his gun wounds in this, uh, gunshot wounds, in this mountain temple. And of course, there are a lot of like mountain monks in Thailand who do live in these kind of retreat environments. There's a lot of controversy because, I mean, the monkhood in the, the, the Sangha in Thailand seems to be a refuge for a number of people who are using it really for their own purposes. But there also are a lot of genuine believers. And, and this sequence, I think, is obviously the truncated version of a longer one. And the time that I guess it's they're playing with time because it feels like Tony Leung has been there for a few months. But when we come back to Hong Kong, it feels he must have been away for a number of years. So we have this beautiful shots of Vietnam and a sense also what you were losing by having a war in such a beautiful country that this country should be torn apart by war for so many years. Those really idyllic shots of the traditional Vietnam. Very beautiful sepia tones to this scene as he's coming back to this. Uh, it's actually a studio, which is the, the setting for Luke's uh, apartment. And all these things are the same, even the, the blood spattered on the Catherine Deneuve picture and the sense that he's come back. So there's really gray areas in how long he's been away, how long it took him to heal from the wounds. I guess the gunshot wounds, looking at a few months at least, but the feeling is that it's been longer. And then again, a chance for uh, Simon Yam to show off his linguistic skills. Shot a movie with him in Paris, Guns and Roses. And uh, he, he, had, like, he just, just speaks in French, he reads a man of the world. And there's great the transformation here. And uh, the journey of these characters. If you remember, there was a sequence that they first saw each other in the washroom back at the Bolero where you have that recognition and this kind of plays off that and that there's such a transition that they've both been on this incredible journey together. And I mentioned before this idea that uh, John Woo plays with the idea that somebody, the war changes everybody. I mean, Simon Yam's character has that line. And so he's been changed in negative way in that now he's been scarred, but in a positive way in that he's now feels he's redeemed of the sins of his past life. And then the payoff here for the character, the, the real central character in terms of the title of the film, Bullet in the Head, is poor Jackie Chung, who here is playing this kind of brain-damaged hitman. 
again criticism about his role i feel that he was less strong in the early scenes in the movie and as the character gets more extreme it was more powerful his performance became very good and also the fact even that it was jackie chung playing the role was really quite powerful and again i think it maybe spoke against the uh success of the film in hong kong because local audiences were so used to seeing jackie chung as like the romantic balladeer or in movies as like a happy-go-lucky fun guy that they didn't really want to go and see a film in which jackie chung gets shot in the head and turns into this kind of demented drug addicted hitman so it was a bit like this wonderful film that clint eastwood did early in his career called the beguiled where his leg is cut off and it wasn't a hit and somebody from warner brothers said well there were apparently there were a lot of people who didn't want to see clint eastwood get his leg cut off and i think there's a lot of people maybe didn't want to see uh jackie chern get uh, get get uh, a bullet in the head the visual look of his hitman character is reflected very much in another vietnamese hitman roy chung plays in the movie wild search which ringo lamb shot with jayun fat and cherry chung um the character is quite different because roy chung is a very cold-hearted hitman but the look the, the the clothing and everything this has kind of become like i guess vietnamese hitman chic and of course the the rationale here is that uh, he must have these drugs it's a very famous shot from the film and uh that he must have the drugs he needs the money to buy drugs and the reason he needs the drugs is that they still got this bullet lodged in his brain without which he would be um you know which is still slowly killing him and making him uh, increase such huge pain that he needs to take these drugs very reminiscent actually of the character played by robert carlisle in the james bond film the world is not enough where they posited the theory that guys take a bullet to the brain and in that case of course the bullets kind of destroyed his pain uh, his ability to feel pain or feel sensation so in this case it's the opposite in that the bullets lodged in his brain he's feeling extreme pain extreme sensations and he has to take drugs but it was kind of the same idea of you know playing in a different direction with the idea of having a bullet in the head still feel in the james bond film the bond film they never really took that concept as as far as they might have done but uh, anyway so this was like i i, I remember there's a shot in the film of like in, in the James Bond movie this kind of 3D graphic of a bullet in the head and I thought back to this movie beautiful uh, cinematography here again Horace Wang's work uh, that beautifully luminous look to the picture as we come into the last act and it really is even in this cut an epic film but beautifully lit I mean and and every scene kind of painted a color that kind of reflects the mood and filmmaking really world-class filmmaking from John Woo and a film that, as I mentioned earlier, really put him on the map as far as Hollywood filmmakers were concerned. They looked at him here and realized this was a guy who could make international films. This scene is only shot in Hong Kong, not in, uh, in Thailand. So uh, I noticed that with Hong Kong sequences, the lighting of the sequences is slightly different. It's got a kind of a more of the traditional look of a Hong Kong action film. But it's actually shot on, a, on the same location that the death of Ringo was shot in that scene earlier in the movie. The film was nominated in, many, in, in most of the categories for the Hong Kong Film Awards. Best Actor nominate, nomination for Tony Leung, Best Director for John Woo, uh, Best DP for the team who worked on it. And they lost out in all three categories to Wong Kar Wai for Days of Being Wild, which had also starred Jackie Chung, who we're seeing here. Leslie Chung won Best Actor, Wong Kar Wai Best Director, Best DP went to Chris Doyle. And it only won, the film only won for Best Editing, which is interesting because today, I mean, I don't know if Days of Wild Days of Being Wild internationally has sustained the reputation that this movie has. I, I think this film probably has been seen by more people and is perhaps more highly regarded and it's a surprise that it really didn't work when first released. 
The action director for the film, a relatively little-known action director, Lerg Chiho, worked on the film. I mean, there's all... And, and what's impressive about his work here is the sheer range of action uh, in that uh, there's all... You get the war, the war material, you get the gangster action, like the gangster street fights, you get gunplay, you get, at the end of the movie, the kind of the car, the, the, the dueling cars. And it's really... Uh, there's, the only thing that's not in the movie is you don't get any prolonged martial arts fights. Everything else is there. By the way, I noticed uh, something about uh, Simon Yam, which is true in uh, real life as well. He's such a snappy dresser. He's like one of Hong Kong's most stylish men. And uh, even though he's scarred, even though he's like living this kind of underground existence in war-torn Saigon, he comes back and he's wearing this kind of wonderful... It looks like he just stepped out of a Hugo Boss or Armani catalogue. Here he looks the part. Actually, I saw him the other day, and uh, a couple of weeks back, and we were at a club called Dragon Eye. And I went to sit with him, and he looked kind of worried. And I realized why, because opposite was Naomi Campbell. And I guess he was concerned I might be kind of coming over to talk to Naomi Campbell. But, you know, I would actually happily tread on Naomi Campbell to sit and talk to Simon Yam, because I think he's much more interesting. <laughs> Naomi Campbell's pretty nice to look at, nicer to look at. But uh, I certainly, you know, have more to talk to Simon Yam about. But that was the last time I saw him, and he was turned out as immaculately, in the same immaculate manner that we, we see him here. And uh, again, it's like a shame in a way that his his uh, performance here didn't lead to more serious movies. But he did make a name for himself as a leading man. And he's worked a lot on not only in films, but on television in Hong Kong. He's worked he, one of the TV series he was in where he dressed up, I think, in the most camp manner was um, the My Date with a Vampire 2, an ATV series. And he was uh, dressed to the nines in that from start to finish. But uh, the film probably people know him for internationally is Naked Killer which is a movie where I've never really bought into the cult of Naked Killer. I mean, I think it's an entertaining exploitation film from Wong Jing. I never really felt that it was the, the wonderful breakthrough film that some people seem to think that it is. But Simon had a good role in that. Recently, um, he, he's done English language work before. He was in a film called Blood Fight that was produced by the Japanese martial arts actor Yasuaki Karata, and he was doing English dialogue then. But he's never really uh, done full-on English filmmaking until last year he had a part in Tomb Raider 2. Though, again, I think given the depth and range that he shows in this movie, he was kind of wasted. He was thrown away in Tomb Raider 2. He could really have been a memorable could have been a memorable uh, introduction as a bad guy working in American cinema, but for some reason it never it never came to pass. And instead we've got that middle-aged white guy fighting with Angelina Jolie at the end, and honestly, I, I honestly feel Simon Yam looks like a credible match for anybody in a film when he's properly shot, like he was in the movie Full Contact, when he's properly filmed. So uh, he would have been a much better bad guy than the guy they actually used in the end. Well, that's Hollywood for you. And in turn, of course, they've never really used the talent of John Woo to the, in, the, in the way that it should be used. And I think a very good comparison would be this film with all of the real emotion, sentiment without sentimentality, and emotion without resorting to kind of cheap ploys to kind of uh, manipulate the audience. You compare this with Wind Talkers, which the premise of which was very encouraging and very interesting, but the movie obviously didn't deliver, was obviously a disappointment to uh, to fans of John Woo and to filmmakers around the world, that um, it shows in a way that the freedoms that he enjoyed in Hong Kong w became constraints when he moved to America, and there's a sense of, like, we'd like you to do genre-limited filmmaking and, and really stay inside your box doing a certain kind of film, and it's harder for him to express himself as an artist as he might otherwise have done. 
So here in Hong Kong at this time, he had the freedom to express himself. And even though the film maybe wasn't a huge box office success, he actually made his most personal of his own films, which is why I'd hope that he'd be here to do a commentary. But it didn't happen. And so uh, it's been my pleasure to watch the film with you and kind of go over these particular points of interest. And this really uh, coming into what should be, to me, the this to me should be the denouement of the film. When we shift back to Hong Kong, the movie to its detriment goes into overtime and uh, to me this was the emotional end of the picture this moment when uh, these this just this moment here I mean between the friends that don't shoot me because he's already had the bullet in the head and it didn't kill him so he doesn't want to be shot in the head again and he wants to look in the eye of his old friend as he's shot in the heart and it's just such a telling moment and it, again it's probably next to that sequence the assassination sequence earlier, the most the most profound moment in the film, and John Woo really following on in the tradition established in the better films of Zheng Jit, where Zheng Jit really looked at chivalry and the bond between brothers um, in the swordplay genre, and John Woo kind of really updating that to initially gangster films and in this to to the war movie. But this is like such powerful stuff; it's really hard to top it. And um, I guess it's because of the commercial constraints of the industry that there was a sense that when you went back to Hong Kong, you really had to have something like the denouement of a typical John Woo or Choi Hart or Kirk Wong gangster movie to kind of make the audience to leave the audience satisfied. To me, the, the the ending that we're about to see doesn't really work as well as another ending, which I don't know if anybody ever conceived of, but I certainly think would have worked. Um, as well or better than what we see now. This scene here actually still in Thailand, so the interior or the semi-interior where we saw Jackie Chung die was shot in Hong Kong, and this was shot earlier during the uh, the Thailand shoot. So quite a good job of matching them up because it's always tricky, particularly when you have a, a quite an extensive makeup job like Simon Yam has there. It's kind of like the uh, similar to the makeup job that Mel Gibson had in uh, Man Without a Face, so that from certain angles you don't see the scarring so badly so you still keep the the look of the actor and the performance but um, you know you do see somebody who's a survivor who survived this experience so this is another aspect of the film the film's always described in reviews and critiques as being about the the bond of brothers between the three guys from Hong Kong but it's also about the relationship between these two and uh, it pays off in this particular sequence I can imagine if you were the producer financing the picture there would be great pressure on John Woo to cut this scene because it doesn't really serve any narrative purpose but my god it adds scale to the picture you really feel this is like a David Lean movie and it's not surprising to me this was actually the poster image for the Hong Kong release because if you because you have no stars what you were selling was the epic this is a hugely expensive sequence probably in apart from uh, the more action intensive ones most expensive sequence in the film and really has nothing to do with the narrative you could just cut from Simon Yam and Tony Leung together and cut Tony Leung returns to Hong Kong but you kind of want to have the fall of Saigon and have this um, this guy still trapped in the, in the middle of chaos to set up what we're going to see in the finale and uh, good for John Woo he stuck to his guns but I mean I'm sure he would be under pressure this is the kind of thing that you would cut but this is where the resources of Salon hat that Salon films had in Thailand really come to their fore that you can actually put together a sequence like this with the tanks, the explosions, 
the uh, with with the refugees, and in the heart of it, wonderfully, uh, Tony Leung, with that great expression. And here we are back in Hong Kong. See the father of Benny Yin's character, the guy sitting there asleep on the left. Here he is, Chang Gan Wing. He was a vampire killer in Bite of Love and Miracles, and it, Bite of Love, and he was also in Miracles, another, another role in Miracles. And there's the mother, uh, who is on the right feeding the kid, Pao Hei Ching, who was in. Uh, Who's a famous actress from television? Also, is in the movie is in the movie Lost in Time, which is playing in theaters now. And he is uh, the wonderful Fenny Yun. This reminds me very much of the end of a movie called Dogfight with the River Phoenix, when this guy comes back from the wars to a woman that he's left behind. Dogfight is a very different um, story, but this moment of him coming back. Uh, to me, if I was thinking about how I would end the film, and God help me, you know, putting myself in the shoes of a great maestro like John Woo. But I feel, and maybe this speaks to my own fact that I'm now a father of kids, that revenge would not be my motivation having come through war. I'd want peace and to be with this wonderful woman and the child and make up for this lost time. And again, the kid looks to be what? Two, two and a bit. So he's been away a while, I mean, two to three years. And I don't know if the film itself encompasses that. Um, the narrative really encompasses that. It feels to me like they were away for a six to eight months, a year at the max. In which case, she must have been pregnant because they never actually got to make love on the wedding night. So she must have already been pregnant when they got married. As I say, that adds earlier in the film, there was a moment of poignance between them during the riots the last time they see each other. And I think part of it is the fact that she's carrying his child but hasn't told him. And that pays off later. And here's our, uh, the, the master of the world, the evil uh, Wazy Lee, for his comeuppance. Now, there are different versions of the film. There's the version I just said, which has only existed in my mind, in which um, Tony Lone's character would come back and for, in some way forego vengeance for peace and maybe just come in and leave this um, the skull of uh, Jackie Jung on the desk and walk out, and he will have destroyed the reputation of Wazy Lee and just go back to live his life. The other possibility is that he comes in and shoots him in the board in, in this boardroom, and they actually did shoot a scene where exactly that happens, and that is the one version that came out on the early VCD release in Hong Kong. That was the VCD release that came out, I think, from Media Asia or even from another company, but it's now not available because Fortune Star are releasing the film. So the Fortune Star VCD is exactly the same version as the DVD. So. Don't make the mistake I made. I tried to find the VCD to look at the other version, but I couldn't find it because Fortune Star obviously have released uh, a uniform version. But if you look elsewhere, I believe on our Hong Kong Legends DVD, my dear colleague Brian White, whose job it is to acquire all these wonderful jewels from around the world, has got like a deleted scene section and some of the stuff will be on there, including the alternative version of this scene in which Tony Leung guns Wazy Lee down in the boardroom. And it always, I guess one reason that doesn't work is then Tony Leung goes to jail and that's the end of the picture and it's kind of the the uh, kind of Infernal Affairs ending where um, Infernal Affairs has uh, one ending where Andy Lau gets away with it and another ending shot for the China and Malaysia Singapore market where in those territories if you break the law you have to pay the price in which he dies at the end as well as he's arrested at the end as well so Tony Leung's character dies and Andy Lau gets arrested so those two possibilities available to you if you're a break the law in a movie released in China Singapore and Malaysia you either end up dead or you um, go to prison. So this is very reminiscent of uh, The Man Who Would Be King. At the end of that movie, Michael Caine comes back to the office of Kipling, played by uh, Christopher Plummer, and he has the head of Sean Connery that he's carried with him 
down from the mountain. So now we have this uh, kind of very reminiscent moment here with the skull of, uh, of Jackie Jones that he's brought back and they set this kind of slightly artificial dramatic encounter being in a boardroom he's just been made kind of the chairman of the board and then here he is now being confronted physically with the skull and the bullet so there's another version of the film when this all is is kind of uh, resolved here violently but to me thematically the best resolution would be that Tony Lung had been through war and wants no more killing and he leaves the skull basically just as a gesture and then walks back and, and gets back to his life and uh, doesn't want to be involved in any more bloodshed but I guess because this movie does fall within the heroic bloodshed genre there is a sense that yes we do need this big finale and it always has an artificial feel to me as though that again the producers say okay we allowed you your big and uh, full of Saigon shot now you have to go back and put together this big um, stunt set piece with machine guns and guns and cars so that we get our big fu big finale that people expect from a Hong Kong crime thriller and I suppose on its own taken on its own terms it is, it is entertaining I mean it's not badly done it's just I felt when I watched the film the first time because this is the most widely seen version of the movie with this particular ending that I'd kind of had the emotional ride of the film and I was done and this didn't really add anything to it other than kind of a frustration that it takes Tony Learn quite so long to take revenge I mean as I look at the film now I'm, I'm kind of less inclined to think that revenge is necessarily what the message of the movie was or should be uh, particularly given John Woo's philosophical background and religious background I mean that's really where the film if he was given a free hand today that's how he would end the film but there are certain demands of Hong Kong cinema and one of them is that of course and the other thing is of course if people commit crimes they have to die at the end of the film or at least suffer greatly so uh, you, you've always got that kind of dynamic happening that uh, for certain key territories in Asia there has to be some kind of natural justice enacted in the course of the film great work here by uh, Bruce Law's stunt team who put this together uh, and we're back very little of the film actually taking place in contemporary Hong Kong but this is one sequence that's uh, that's shot here we are on Kowloon side in this kind of um, in one of the rundown areas I think it's Kwai Jong they were shooting in for um, this car jousting sequence and then now down by the Docklands Hong Kong of course very famous for docks and the Deepwater Harbour is what made Hong Kong famous in the first place and you're lucky actually in the day that in the days when this movie was shot it was quite a challenge to actually get permission even to shoot that little bit of action on a city street because the police were very reluctant to, to shut off space and allow you to actually go out and shoot there's a famous story about Bruce Law the guy that shot this that he was shooting outside the very famous uh, outside the Mandarin Hotel in Central a sequence for a movie that he he was actually was the uh, the director of the movie a movie called Extreme Crisis and it was a sequence where he was gonna blow up this uh, great big truck and it was gonna spin in the air and knowing that you couldn't get police permission he went ahead and shot it anyway and then hired a bunch of extras to pretend to be the director the DP the producer and they all stood to one side you know, dressed up as director and everything the police turned up to come course everybody complained about the exploding truck the police showed up to arrest everybody and people said oh there's the director over there so then they arrested those guys and they went down to <laughs> the jail and Bruce moved to the next street and kept on filming so that was kind of the tactics that you ha used to have to employ and it's got a bit better since uh, not a lot but it's got a bit better 
a lot of filmmakers complaining we were talking earlier about uh, Tomb Raider 2 that Simon Yam was in a lot of local filmmakers protested about the fact that Tomb Raider 2 were given access to buildings and locations that they were not because basically the Tomb Raider 2 people were a foreign film and the foreign filmmakers were actually getting preferential treatment when they came into Hong Kong to shoot here local filmmakers didn't actually get to enjoy the same kind of um, uh, preferential treatment given by the government which seems bizarre because the Hong Kong government really should support the local filmmakers so rightly or wrongly that complaint was made and now there seems to be steps on the part of local authorities to make land and property available and try to educate the public in how to behave when people are filming in Hong Kong so you get this kind of protracted and bloody gun battle here between these two guys, the two former friends which um, is really uh, typically intense John Woo filmmaking but I'm not sure quite how uh, relevant it is to what the movie has been about. I felt that really Tony Leung had suffered enough by the time he got back to Hong Kong but anyway we get this kind of uh, set piece. The other thing that's never really explained, early in the film we have this kind of transition between them being these naive youngsters and being these kind of gun wielding uh, gangster types here somehow they've learned these driving skills and I mean I'm wondering where they learned to drive because when they left Hong Kong they didn't they didn't drive when they were in um, in didn't drive anyway t in this kind of stunt way when they were in Vietnam and I guess you know Tony Leung didn't learn driving at the Buddhist monastery I guess Wazy Lee maybe learned after he got back but again it's one of those things that really the logic of the film has been sacrificed to a kind of a get this driving narrative happening very powerful, uh, powerfully shot. And as I say, I mean, if this was really the end sequence for another movie, I probably would be uh, more in sympathy with it than I am here. But I do remember the first time seeing the picture. I think I never saw the movie on the big screen. I don't think the movie was got any, even the late night show in England. It didn't get a late night show release in Chinatown. It was on video. And watching the picture and being blown away by the earlier parts of the film, the scene in the washroom, the assassination in the washroom, the scene in the... Um, prison camp but then feeling that this really was a, a long and drawn out display of, of car uh, chasing and pyrotechnics and uh, really not necessarily um, relevant to the story and not, not necessarily the ending that would be expected by an audience uh, who'd, who'd watched the rest of the movie it was just something that really comes out of left field great stunt work though I mean this is like uh, the meat, and, the meat and potato of Hong Kong filmmakers that uh, at, at the drop of a hat they can actually get that kind of action happening. This is an example you see here of turning a negative into a positive. This was obviously meant to be shot overnight and so dawn is breaking so we get kind of different shots of different light quality. They're using the smoke to kind of cheat it a bit but these shots it's obvious that the, the dawn is breaking you've run out of time and so they get certain shots to cheat to seem that it's still nighttime, and that then at the end we slowly diffuse into the dawn so that we do have like a, the dawn sequence happening. But the so there's a feeling like okay, dawn is broken for the character that you know he's kind of uh, his his achieved his goal, he's done what he needed to do, and so it's a new day for him. But uh, my feeling looking at it is having been in this experience, you know, you're always racing to get as much as you need shot during a night shoot, and um, so we have this kind of really bloody finale happening during one night. You see the shot there, the sky is really light behind the flames. But you use all these things like flames and smoke to disguise the fact that actually, you know, it's not nighttime anymore. Um, so that the transitions happen. 
but uh, so there's kind of if you look there's a back and forth some shots it's very dark and some shots the sky is lighter but they just about get away with it obviously they're under the gun to finish this sequence and we get the the, the final shot of course it's revealed it is daylight and so they they get away with it the um Wazy lee here uh and and tony Leung battered and bloodied both internally and externally by the by the progress of the film this is another great John Woo touch, the idea of the skull of Jackie Chung's character becoming this kind of icon in the final reel. He's taking the idea that was shown in John Huston's film, The Man Who Would Be King, and really taking it to the nth degree. This is another, another image you see a lot when you see images from the film. It's the bloodied face, the, the mask of blood on the face of Wazy Lee. He's almost become another person that his ambition and his arrogance and his greed has changed him that he's now his face is like bloody and he's like kind of it's almost like he's become he's not even the same person who originally went to vietnam so you have this kind of the sound then coming in very nice sound mixing of the helicopter from from vietnam and this beautiful score in the background that beautiful flute theme that we've heard that represents the innocence the lost innocence of the characters that plays as I say, I mean, I think if you had another actor, if you'd had Tony Lerngarfai, then you would have had more of an impact here because she would have had a, a, a slightly more measured performance than you get from, from Wazy Lee. But by this point, I think uh, the audience really feeling that they've seen enough blood and death and uh, they want the, uh, a resolution to matters. So we have a final kind of twist. I mean, the title in, in English really is much more appropriate than the Chinese title, Deput Gaitao. Deput Gaitao could be any kind of picture, but bullet in the head, we have the, um, obviously the, the titular, the bullet of the head can be referred to the fact that um, Jackie Chung gets shot in the head. But then of course we get this kind of wrap up here, the manner by which Wazy Lee is killed. And um, this kind of Yorick moment when they're talking, alas poor Yorick, they're talking to the skull, which is um, again, very uh, John Woo, really taking things to the, to the nth degree. It's, it's something that he's um, a master of, is taking ideas and really making them work in the context of the film this kind of and you see many sub john woo filmmakers trying to use similar ideas in hong kong gangster films and they really don't work and here's day breaking and a second bullet in the head and this one killing uh Wazy lee and uh great expression of regret and relief for tony Leung. and you see this this works for them they've shot through the night dawn breaks and then there's like this kind of final moment. So maybe the idea of the film is that, as the old saying says, if you if you go on a, a road for vengeance, then you dig two graves. So he's actually survived. And I guess you know, pending that he not die of uh, losing blood from his gunshot wound, and that he not be arrested as he leaves this scene of carnage, he can actually go back to Fenny Yun and his kid. And I kind of hope that's what happens because I mean, Tony Leung's character is really the central figure of the film. And the most sympathetic guy and they, you notice the gesture at the end of throwing the gun away which i think is very indicative of where the journey is meant to have taken him in the mind of john woo so there you have it folks a genuine masterpiece i mean i've been doing commentaries for any number of hong kong movies but i don't know if there's any film really uh which is quite such a groundbreaking film in terms of this particular genre of uh, heroic bloodshed filmmaking i think uh, bullet in the head is regarded now as one of the greatest films of John Woo. So it's been my privilege to go to look at the film with you today and I uh, hope you've uh, maybe seen some interesting aspects of it that you perhaps otherwise would not have noticed. 
My thanks to John Woo for his enormous contribution to Hong Kong cinema and particularly for making this film. It's been a pleasure to watch it again with you. And uh, thanks again for supporting Hong Kong Legends and all our efforts to bring you the very finest in Hong Kong and Asian cinema. Bay Logan in Hong Kong. Joy Gein. Jai Jen. Sayonara. Goodbye.